Hello and welcome to another edition of Turned Out of Punk. I'm your host, Damian Abraham. Once again, I'm bringing you a conversation with someone who grew up listening to punk, may or may not still be involved with punk, but had the life changed by the genre in a major way. Today on the show, huge guest for me, one of my from one of my favorite bands of all time, Ray On from The Hard Ons is going to be on the show today. And this is a fun conversation. Get ready. More on that in one second. But first, if you want to get in touch with me, head over to the email address, turned at a punk podcast at gmail.com. That is run by my brother and show producer and guest booker extraordinaire, Tristan Abraham. And he will get the message to me. He also runs a Facebook page for turned out a punk and an Instagram page for this thing as well. You can find those by searching Turned Out a Punk on uh, on those services. Now, I'm sure that'll come up. If you're looking for me, I'm on Twitter and Instagram at Left Fort Damien. If you want to support the show, the best way to support the show is by telling your friends about it. You can also head over to uh, where you're subscribing to this or listening to this and rating it and leaving a review. Thank you to people that do do that. You can also head over to TurnedOutAPunk.com and pick up a T-shirt. I uh, understand there's some issues shipping uh, some, to some places, getting all figured out, uh, mainly for the U.S. right now, too, because we're trying to figure out stuff for international and, and certainly Canada. So, you know, mainly U.S., but uh, I understand there's also some issues getting some places shipping right now. It's 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 like a logistic nightmare out there these days, but bear with us, and thank you to everyone who has picked up a shirt. We're down to some we're, – we're, we're whittling them down. They're going actually really quickly. And uh, so please feel free to grab one uh, while you can. Uh, you can also support the show by heading over to patreon.com slash turned at a punk and checking out some of the stuff that gets put up there. There's footnotes, there's video versions of some of the episodes, there's uh, other lost episodes, hidden episodes, all sorts of fun stuff. So check that out if you are, uh, if you're, if you're able to, and thank you to everyone that does do that. Really do appreciate it. And speaking of support, this show would not be possible if the kind support of the fine folks at Vans who came aboard a few years ago and said, Damien, do what you do. We just want you to have to do it in your own pocket and help me cover the cost of this thing. And it has been fantastic. So I really do appreciate them for doing that because you know what? There are a lot of costs with putting together a free podcast. Who would have thought? Who would have thought? Not I. Not I. Uh, speaking of things I didn't think, I did not think I'd be saying this a, a, you know, a year ago, but... The band I play in Fucked Up is planning on tentatively going on tour come January to promote the 10th anniversary of our album, David Comes to Life. It's going to be reissued by Matador. There's also like a bonus LP with all these other singles on it. There's uh, uh, also we're going to be putting out Epics in Minutes on the great, the amazing Get Better Records with Jenna and Alex, who have both been on the show. Uh, Also, Scotty Karate Tank Crimes will be putting out the Year of the Horse record. And I think those pre-orders that people that pre-ordered are getting it now. You can find it in stores as of next week, I believe. I think if you're listening to this when it drops, it might be in stores now by the time you hear it. And uh, yeah, so we're going to be going on tour. Uh, Check us out if we're coming to a town near you in the United States and in parts of Europe. I think that's all we've got planned so far, but maybe more to come. Check out fuckedup.cc for more info on that. All right, on to today's show. Ray On from the Hard Ons is here. Now, 
The Hard Ons are a band that I've loved for a very long time. I, I, I talk about this with Ray. You'll hear about this in a second. Uh, and so it is a huge thrill to get a chance to talk to them. The Hard Ons, for those of you who are unfamiliar, are kind of like, I, I guess, like the, uh, the, uh, the, big, the biggest, arguably, independent Australian punk band or longest running. Um, you know, there's certainly a band that has been key to that country's music for a very long time. Hugely, hugely influential all over the place, you know, as, as illustrated by myself talking about how influential they are on me. Uh, Ray is someone that I've always wanted to talk to because I've heard tale that he's a record collector, but oh my gosh, he is a record collector beyond reproach. This is a fun one. I'm very excited for you to hear this. Uh, there are uh, a couple uh, hard-ons records that came out last year. Actually, well, there are a couple of things that Ray played on that came out last year, I should say. The hard-ons put out a fantastic new record called I'm Sorry, Sir, That Riff's Been Taken on Cheer Squad Records and Tapes. This thing's awesome. It is a, a feel-good record, if there ever was one. Uh, you can check that out now. Also, his Nunchaka Superfly uh, band side project supergroup of sorts uh, just put out a brand new record called Aussie Exorcism Nah mate you can't punch a ghost I, I didn't that was not an attempt at Australian accent there by the way I just you know that's how I read it uh, that is out on uh, Tim Records TYM Records and Cool Banana Record Company so pick out both of those records check out both of those records and if you've not checked out the hard-ons before whoo you got a lot of great musical discovery ahead of you. And and I would extend that to tons of other bands from that whole waterfront record scene. It's something that is, once again, very foundational to Australian underground music, punk music. Something that I don't know how well known it is internationally, especially at this point. So if you have not checked out some of these bands, you've got, oh, there's so much good stuff for you to check out. Australia, we talk about this, so I'm, I'm you know, pardon me for repeating it. But, oh, so much good punk comes out of that place. And you're going to hear about all of it in a second. Uh, That is it. Oh, I do have some notes. Uh, First of all, the the, uh, side project or or post project of the Doughboys that I could not remember is Joy. And no, that is not on Discogs, weirdly, too. But uh, Joy, and they have one seven-inch, so pick that up if you find that. Uh, also there's record talk on this episode and Ray ran over and was getting records to show me the records. I left these parts in Well, you know, I cut it down when he's actually searching for the record, but I left this part, these parts in because there's a lot of cool stuff coming out of it, but just bear in mind, he's showing me these records and then we're talking <laughs> afterwards. It only happens a couple times, but I just wanted to forewarn that to you. Uh, I say that the heyday of Japanese punk is the mid nineties. I would definitely be, uh, Remiss of it, I did not add the late 80s as well. Late 80s to mid-90s is, is whew, peak Japanese hardcore time. Uh, Lawrence from the uh, famous Domino Records and also of the band uh, Perfect Days did not, I repeat, did not do an oi fanzine. It was more like a punk rock fanzine. But it did cover, I guess, like second wave punk. New punk, I think they called it at the time. Anyway, those are the notes that I got right here. Uh, I'm not going to ramble on anymore. Please enjoy Ray On on Turned Out a Punk. Ray, thank you so much for coming on the show. Oh, no problems, Damien. I, I hope you're well. I'm doing good. You know, I'm doing a lot better now that I'm seeing you here because as I was just telling you off air, you're one of my 
you're like the hard-ons are one of my favorite bands of all time and as i just oh wow i forced you to kind of go through my record collection with me just before we went on the record here uh as you can see like i've traveled the world kind of finding your records and getting to see you guys live that one time in australia was such a huge thrill for me so yeah, i'm i'm oh, very wow. excited to do this with you i'm very flattered but can i ask you something damien yeah when you when you do you see so I know you're a huge collector of records and um, things like that. So when you tour with your band, do you always visit secondhand record stores and whatnot to uh, check out the stores and that kind of stuff? Yeah, that's always like, I find that's my happy place on tour. And it's also- Me too. Yeah. You know, I feel that's why there's like a, you know, a, a, a kinship, you know, like a, a certain type of person that winds up playing punk rock that does it because they love this music and just want to, you know, be around music. And that's, I'm definitely, you know, brings me a lot of comfort finding waterfront singles all over the world and like going through seven oh, wow. inches and stuff. And yeah. Yeah. I, I actually told, um, um, I, I know fucked up started quite a while back, but I think the hard ones started even earlier. So, um, what what was the very first time you traveled outside Canada to play music? Two thousand and one. Right. Yeah. When the first time the Hard Ons traveled outside Australia was nineteen eighty eight. So we had a little bit like maybe a ten year head start on you guys, and but our experiences are probably similar. That you go into a new um city you've never been to and you bump into a great secondhand record store and you just start freaking out right yeah yeah I know, I oh find, yeah 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 i find for me it's also like you know i guess it's like the same way people go to mcdonald's when they're traveling if they're american yeah. you know like you want that taste of home i find oh well i find record stores always give you that taste of home you know because you you're around your kind of people when you're in a record store that's exactly right. And I've, I've actually come back from Europe and places like that. And, and um, I've told them, hey, listen, I was in Barcelona. They, they said, did you go to the uh, Gaudi um, um, Museum? I said, yes, but I was there for five minutes because there was a, <laughs> a record store around the corner. <laughs> and people get really upset. Yeah. People get really upset. I said, well, you know, it's still culture. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, and it I doesn't think, matter. Yeah. And it's it's normally like you go to the Gaudi Museum, you're going to be surrounded by tour guides and other tourists. You go to a record store, you're going to be surrounded by locals. That's exactly right. I, I just I I love the parallel universe that is the record store in Europe, mm -hmm. right? You've got you see so you you would have seen people in record stores all all across Canada, and you recognize them. You know the different um species and a subspecies of the record store person yeah and then you go to uh you go to i don't know um the south of france and you see the same person mm -hmm. you know the the you know the the snob the hipster you know the the um the intolerant first pressing um collector uh the idiots you know you see all the all the subspecies <laughs> of the record record buying public and i find that fascinating myself yeah, like I guess pre the movie of High Fidelity coming out, I remember watching or reading the book, sorry, and just like being like, oh my gosh, it's it's all the archetypes are here. Like they're breaking it all down. Like Nick Hornsbury, I think, wrote that book. But anyway, he's yes. he's, he's going through it all and I'm like, this is a universal. 
this guy's experiencing yeah. it and I'm experiencing it and you're experiencing it, Ray. And we, we, it's, it is something that's like, it's comforting to go there and be around, like, as you're saying, the hipster, the complete freak record collector, the first press collector. And you're like, ah, oh, these are, I know these, it's like walking into cheers or something. Oh no, I know. I love it. I love it. Well, I got to start this off though, Ray, the oh, way that I'm sorry. I'm sorry. No, please. You no, yeah. no. I, but the way they all start off. Cause if I don't do this, I forget to ask this question. Oh, and then okay. we get to the end. I'm like, <laughs> oh, I forgot to ask it. Uh, but Ray, how did you get into punk to remember the first time you ever came across the genre? Yes, of course. Um, uh, my next door neighbor, Ian, uh, got me into bands like, um, Kiss, uh, ACDC, um, hard rock bands like Deep Purple and Led Zeppelin. So he was, um, he was a few years older than me. He was five years older than me. So he was like a fully fledged teenager and I was only 11. Mm. Um, and he, he got me into hard rock. And so this would be the mid seventies. Um, so punk rock hadn't quite started, but I loved, uh, Australia had a really, um, uh, deep, rich, uh, ingrained, um, love for hard rock and guitar rock and blues based music. And, uh, he went and bought, um, the, the seven inch by the sex pistols called, um, uh, uh, God save the queen with a picture sleeve. Yeah. And he played it for me, and I thought this it was really great. And um, he, a few um, few weeks later, he said I could have it. He, he said he didn't really like it, and he gave it to me. So I kept that record and played it over and over again. But uh, all the while, I was really deeply in love with all the big um, hard rock bands of the day. Um, like, of course, ACDC were local heroes. Um, and then eventually... Um, uh, you, you couldn't really avoid punk rock at my high school. I, there was a core group of us that really liked that stuff. And the other guys happened to be uh, the two guys that I ended up um, joining for the hard-ons. They were into punk rock. And uh, I, I got got into punk rock basically through that one seven inch. It really um, um, lifted up my... Um, uh interest in that kind of music because it was quite obviously um there was a um everything about it was very different to uh hard rock that i knew for example even just really simple things like the shape of somebody's hair or the cut of somebody's trousers mm -hmm. was different mm -hmm. so it just felt quite different in a way and um and that was a sex pistol but then when i heard Two bands that I heard that made me really kind of take it up a notch was uh, the Ramones, and the other band was the Australian band, the Saints. And those two bands um, really made me completely get engrossed in it because back in the late 70s, it was pretty unthinkable to form a band that sounded like, um, I don't know, um, Led Zeppelin or Deep Purple, let alone King Crimson or Emerson, Lake and Palmer, you yeah, know, yeah. I mean, nobody buys Tarkas by Emerson, Lake and Palmer <laughs> and says, I'm going to go into my garage with my friends and <laughs> form a band. You know what I mean? Yeah. But it, we've, uh, you, you have to be, I would say that you'd be pretty familiar with the Saints first album, I'm Stranded. Absolutely. And 
Yeah, me too. I mean, that's like Australian national anthem, you know. So that record and the first few Ramones records were, um, they they were uh, brutally um, um, instructional in the way they presented tuneful music, uh, direct linear tuneful music. Uh, without too many bends or kinks or detours or themes. They basically didn't seem to have too many ridiculous layers. Mm. Uh, they didn't seem to have any things like mechanical armadillos with, you know, things like that. They they didn't have, you know, um, imagery that was uh, um, quite um, uh, deliberately... Um, uh, cryptic and things like that. They were direct. Yeah, I, I really liked the the front cover of the Ramones, the four guys standing there, for example. The Saints' first album, again, four guys standing there. <laughs> One of them with thumb in his pocket, you know, <laughs> things like that. You know, I found that really direct and linear and very powerful because of it. And when you hear the music, you can hear all four members of the band locking into one little space. You know, this is purely technical point of view. Mm. Uh, and that was really different to um, the meandering of, again, I'll come back to this band, um, Emerson, Lake and Palmer, or King Crimson. As much as I love King Crimson, I just think that uh, the lack of meander, the, the, the conciseness of it, the, the everything compressed into one little power ball, um, you know, it just makes a lot of sense to... Um, Makes a lot of sense to uh, a, a young young mind, I think. You know, um, absolutely. So that was the late seventies, yeah. So were you in like you know you mentioned me in the the blues rock stuff? Was it like Lobby Lloyd and Colored Balls and and that kind of whole like Sharpie scene of bands? Yeah, they those bands were always uh, very um, um, prevalent in when I was growing up. Mm -hmm. You know, we all heard about you know the the tough kids, tough older kids up the street into that kind of stuff. Um, and that, that kind of hard rock was everywhere. It was on TV. Yeah. Uh, you, you heard it coming. Um, you, like in, in Australia at the time, you could walk past a, a, a park uh, uh, and there'd be a gigantic PA set up and there'll be free concerts blasting the loudest rock music. And they were really common and prevalent. This is before people started complaining about them and things like that. Um, I mean, just not long ago, I was talking to my next door neighbor, Ian, uh, the the gentleman that uh, was my next door neighbor, my friend who was five years older than me. I was talking to him uh, the other day online about this. And I said, do you remember when we saw ACDC for free <laughs> at the park where up the road from where we lived? He said, yeah, yeah, that was, that was loud and just incredibly loud. I mean, unthinkably loud. <laughs> and I remember telling him they were that loud that we, I mean, remembering this is the mid seventies. Yeah. Uh, I drove up to, uh, my father took us um, in, in his car, a bunch of kids up, up the road uh, to the next suburb, which was probably a kilometer away. And, and he bought us all McDonald's and we're sitting on the McDonald's outdoor dining area. And we heard, we heard the bands from a kilometer away. I, yeah. I'm not kidding you. It was that yeah. loud. And years later, um, I met Malcolm Young, the, the, 
the guitar player from ACDC. I told him about that. And he said, yeah, you know, that was a, that was what you had to do. Um, uh, back then, you know, you, you had to, uh, you had to play loud. That was a done and done, done thing. And, uh, um, we, we, um, discovered a lot of things about how bands used to play back then. Uh, the volume and everything was kind of non-negotiable, but to think that that kind of volume was, um, freely available in Australia, um, outdoors and the neighbors didn't really complain. There was, there was none of this, uh, complaining or anything like that. So that was, you know, you, you couldn't happen now. Everyone would be in uproar. You couldn't have, have that kind of music and that loud, but that was really a big thing in Australia, those loud outdoor free concerts and stuff. Um, so we got to see a few bands that way when we were kids. And so it was always around that music was all the loud music was always around us. Yeah. Like I think, you know, not until I kind of got to go on tour in Australia, did I really appreciate the importance of loud rock and roll to culture in in australia like music culture rock culture especially like you know so much mainstream rock music around the world is normally the softest manifestation of it we're in mm -hmm. australia continually from you know acdc to the saints and birdman to yourselves to like even now like amel and the sniffers and the sniffers and like uh like there's like rock and roll heavy rock and roll is is there's such a rich history of it in australia and it seems like this dna kind of runs consistently throughout rock music in that country or in your country so yeah yeah i think i think so i'm, I'm not quite sure why i, I yeah. can't really work it out um but how things happen in canada i'm, I'm not really sure but canada has a rich history of um music as well but i mean not just hard rock or um classic rock or um uh uh um popular music but i'm talking about um underground uh music as well i mean some of my favorite underground bands were bands like no means no and the nils you know yeah the asexuals um yeah the subhumans those ba you know incredible bands but um i don't know enough about canada i've never been there i've got canadian friends um, there are some, you know, Voivod is one of the greatest heavy metal bands of all time. But, but in terms, I know what happens in Australia, and but I can't explain why. It, we have a very, very deep and rich history of um, hard rock, and but the thing is that really sets you up beautifully to move on to punk rock. By the mm -hmm. time 1977 came around, Australia was just set for. I mean, we're it was almost like all these people decided we're already listening to hard rock and blues rock and heavy riffing, right? We're already there. There's already a history of Lobby Lloyd, ACDC, before that, the Missing Links, Masters Apprentices. There's already distorted guitar already available. Where can we go? And all of a sudden, um, people like Radio Birdman and Saints are like, we're already there, guys. Listen to this. It like, yeah. sounds like a rocket ship taken off. We're <laughs> like, oh, wow. This is like, this is like ACDC and Lobby Lloyd times five, you know, it's, it's, it's all of a sudden I've just trimmed everything off. All of a sudden, you know, absolutely no trimmings, just direct. And, uh, uh, which teenager or a little kid couldn't relate to that. It's frighteningly good, you know? Yeah, absolutely. Well, I, I was going to ask you because the saints of course beat 
the Sex Pistols to having a record out and the Ramones too, right? Like I get, but I guess it's so it's such a micro pressing, like 500 copies. There's not really popular awareness of them that early on. I've got a copy of that right behind here. Cool. It's in there somewhere. Top yeah, want, I've top got... want still. I've, I've, you, you like that record? It's, it's you, definitely, you like... we, the power exchange pressing was one that they actually shipped over here. I guess the British pressing of it, but wow. it's like, yeah, it's yeah. one of the ones that like, you know, like that's, that's, that's where it starts for me. Like if you're to want to the first one. Oh yeah. I'll got it here. Damn. Look at it right there. The Holy grail. The one that started off. It. And it's, but you want to hear something, but that was, that was a copy belonging to uh, Kim Bradshaw, the bass player. What? <laughs> yeah. So I bought it off a friend of mine. And uh, it had Kim Bradshaw, that was his personal copy. And he had written Kim Bradshaw in a uh, in, uh, pen. Yeah. And I was just, some, some idiot's written their name on it. And then I managed to get a, one of those um, German-made um, office erasers, and I rubbed it out. <laughs> and then a week later, I saw him. I said, thanks for selling me that record. I've been looking for it for quite a while. And he said... Amazing that I sold it to you. I, I, I should have kept it. It was, you know, I said, yeah, you'll find it. And I was like, yeah, but not Kim Bradshaw's personal copy. <laughs> and I said, what did I erase out? He goes, oh, that was his name. He had written it in his handwriting. And I was like, <laughs> I erased it. Uh, well, you know, at least you got it still. You know, that's the important thing with these things, holding on but, to them. And also, he's still alive. He's, he's somewhere here on Earth. So before he dies, I, I need to track him down and ask him to carefully um, go over the indentation that that because the indentation of the pen is still there. Yeah, I'm just gonna say, can you put your uh, your your name back on this for me, please? <laughs> because if I did it, it would be inauthentic. But absolutely, if you, so yeah, I'll can track him down. Yeah, but that's yeah, it's it's the Australian national anthem, Damien. Yes. That's, I agree. that's 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 our that's our, uh, our national anthem well that's what i find so amazing about the genre is the fact that you have all these people all over the world like teenage head and uh um simply saucer were the canadian bands that were doing it first like in the but the same time oh. like mid-70s yeah. there all these bands all over the world rock from the tombs obviously and and dr feelgood uh you know and all these kids were all like okay let's you know let's not be emerson lake and palmer and king crimson let's take it back to where it started and, and make rock and roll again like it feels like a groundswell was happening oh yeah totally teenage head were they you must be proud of that band i mean oh, like the, the first couple of albums were incredible you know mm -hmm. i mean some some of it probably was a bit patchy and some of it was probably a little bit for me a little bit too good time frat rock but then you had songs like um, Ain't Got No Sense and other songs off the first couple of albums. I mean, they, they're just incredible driving, driving fast rock and roll, you know? Absolutely, yeah. Really straight ahead. And here's something I learned recently. The original singer of DOA, the pre-DOA band, The Skulls, was Australian. Right. Really? Yeah. There was some guy that they oh, met, wow. and he was living in Vancouver. And he uh, sang for them for a while, and he said, and Joey Shit had said, he he was the gnarliest dude we've ever met. Like that's the reason we went the way we went because this guy was so. Oh nuts. wow! 
Oh, wow. So you must have had a great time touring Australia. Loved it. Uh, every second. Every time we get to go, it's just like, because to me, like we're talking about when punk hits, it hits. So anytime you go to a record store, it's like reaching your hand into the water and pulling out a bucket of fish, right? Like every record you pull out is interesting. There's always oh, yeah. something cool. Oh, 100%. 100%. And, and it all needs to be documented. Mm. It all needs to go into the hands of the right people. Mm-hmm. Because, um, uh, you know, do you have anything in your collection which is uh, politically uh, unreasonable? For example, screwdriver or anything like that in your personal collection? There's definitely some oi and metal records that are, uh, I, yeah. I definitely don't ideologically follow in suit with some of these yeah. bands, that's for sure. Yeah. Well, you know, I... I went to a dinner with uh, a friend in Germany and uh, he had all these screwdriver records and I looked at him and my eyes narrowed like um, more than usual. You know, I was like, what is this? <laughs> I said, Marcus, what is this? And he said, oh, these are screwdriver records. And I said, I know what they are, but these are, these are white power assholes. And he said, yeah. well, yeah, but I'm just documenting this stuff. I love punk rock. This is when punk rock became really dark and and was just politically repugnant. But you know, we need to document this stuff. He goes, My I have so many records. Don't think of my records as a place for me to enjoy myself. Uh, think of my records as a museum. Mm. I need to document all the records. I don't care if, even if it's a bad punk rock record. I'm so obsessed with punk rock. I need to document everything about it, everything. So it was kind of like that. I, you know, I mean, and I totally agree with him. You know, I've got records like that. I mean, I'm just like, there's no way in hell, you know, I'm going to invite any of those people around to dinner around my house. But um, I think documentation is pretty important. And it's whether we like it or not, some of these people were politically just absolutely repugnant and awful, but they were there. You can't deny it. Well, you know? especially with a band like that, where they're on Chiswick and they're they're playing with all the first wave punk bands, and then at a certain point, you know, the fascism comes in, and just seeing where that yeah. spread, and you're still dealing with it in America, like the idea of like Nazi skinheads, you know, originating with screwdriver. And where the, that horrible thing kind of went, like it's, it's amazing, you know, not in a good way, obviously, but like it's amazing the impact and the historical weight some of these records yeah. carry. Yeah, I it's, for me, it's um, as as a, a, a an Asian guy growing up in Australia, I I came across a lot of those people, mm. um, and the last thing you want to do is go into a uh historical discussion about where what punk rock sounds like uh you know the verse chorus verse and where the four four beat and you know you, you go hey listen if it wasn't for africa and people of dark skin color from africa we would not even have rock rock and roll and we would not even have punk rock yeah. but you can't talk to those people because those people are basically interested in very very shallow topics really narrow top topics which is i don't like people who are pakistanis or whatever they really 
stupid simplistic um, topics. And then they, you know, some of them might go, well, I'm into working class ethics and all this kind of stuff. It's like, it's all horse shit, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, so for me, um, I don't even discuss that those kinds of things with those people because normally when I used to try and do that, it would end up with, you know, a fist being thrown there, a fist being thrown here. You know, I don't need that stuff in my life. But, you know, I mean, it's one of those weird things how anyone could be into punk rock, but they're right wing. Um, yeah. I can't understand it, but uh, it's there. <laughs> it's yeah. there. It's, it's bizarre, you know. And it goes back to the beginning, too. Like, like there's a history of this sort of abhorrent political side of this thing that kind of rears its head from the very beginning. Like, we're talking about, like, you know, 70 or 80 on, basically. It's it's mm. it's around and stuff. Um, it's I think, really weird. Well, when Jello was on, I think he, Jello Biafra, he talked about meeting you guys for the first time at a show. And it was, like, the day before you had some shit with Nazis like being fucked oh, with yeah. Nazis. And he said, like, yeah, like I met them and then it was they had just had some bullshit with Nazis the day before, type thing when he was on the show. We had so many weird things happen with Nazis, but you know, we 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 were the best band to be in that place, um, to deal with that kind of stuff because we we had um we had a good way of dealing with that, you know, through humor and art. And that's that's why we had a we had a record called all set to go mm. uh which which you have in your collection it's got the three of us dressed as ku klux klan yeah and we released that not long after a friend of ours who was um he was a spaniard immigrant uh, of olive skin uh kid uh he used to come to all our shows and he got really beat up by a bunch of nazi skinheads you know and i know they were nazi skinheads because um i saw them earlier in the show we swastikas and stuff like that, you know. So I knew they were Nazis, and so as musicians and artists, the the way to respond to something like that would be through your music and art. That's your most powerful tool. So that's why we put out that sleeve to say we think this is all a bit silly, you know, um, because what what we were saying with that image was that. Um, we're in Australia. If you want to be white power, neo-Nazi, white supremacist, have a good look at yourselves. Because underneath the hood, we're all kind of immigrants, you know. I mean, this mm-hmm. is a country that's, you know, the 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 the, the re- recent settlers s- stole the land from the original indigenous Aboriginal people, and we're pretending that uh, we're better than. The next recent arrivals, it's, it's the most ridiculous thing I've ever heard. Yeah. So the whole idea of white power in Australia is just absurd. And that's why we drew a picture of us dressed as Ku Klux Klan. Because you take the hood off, underneath, we're all, <laughs> none of us are pure. You know, we're all immigrants. This is this is Australia. So that's what we were trying to say, how, how ridiculous those things are, you know. Yeah in a country like Australia. And that was, and a lot of it, that really resonated with a lot of people because they went, hey, they, they're right, you know? <laughs> but uh, we did it through humor and through our music. And then if you listen to the record, it's just a, it's a love song. It's a pop song, you know? It's like, you know, we never thought about 
doing anything different. We didn't want to write a political song or anything. That could stay for the cover. But the song is a love song, you know. So it's only got two chords. It's punk rock, you know. But yeah. um, we, that's how we made that statement through, you know, to deal with neo-Nazis at our shows. Yeah, and Canada's the same way. We're a settler. Uh, well, not everyone here, obviously. There's indigenous people here. But, like, there's certainly the majority of these people are settlers. And any one of these people it's in a white power band is a hundred percent a settler in America too. You know, like anytime you see these neo-Nazis, it's like, like you're saying, they, they, they stole the land and then they steal black music for the riffs and then they call it white power. And it's just, it's, it's, it's laughable if it wasn't so horrible. Oh yeah. It's really weird. Um, but you know, but that's, uh, we can't deny that. That's how some of the, uh punk rock went to you know and and you know to be honest um as much as i love punk rock um some of the people that i've met through the punk rock scene were some of the most awful people i've <laughs> ever met in my life and it's and you you're probably the same right yeah definitely yeah definitely. i mean it's a, it's really weird nobody but nobody when they're young kids teenagers or whatever gets involved with the punk rock scene to get judged by somebody else yeah do we we don't get into punk rock to be judged by other people i mean we don't like that um harsh societal judgment of who we should be and what we should be and what our music should sound like that was an attractive thing in the first place so it beats me why you get as a young person you get involved in punk rock and people start judging you by the length of your hair you know you're maybe you know, little things like your uh, opinions on certain um, subjects, you know. I mean, I've been yelled at by somebody for wearing a leather jacket. It's like, well, what am I supposed to say? Well, the Ramones wore leather jackets, <laughs> you know. <laughs> You've got long hair. You're not a punk. Well, um, John Cowell had long hair. Um, <laughs> I'm pretty sure he's a punk as fuck. <laughs> yeah. What can you say? You know. Yeah. But yeah. Well, it's, I don't it, have to tell you all this. You know it, this already. Well, no, but it's it's once again it's like the universal, like the record store thing we were talking about. It's like the universality of the punk experience, where we're all drawn to this thing because we don't fit in, and some people get here and decide that they're going to turn, they're going to replicate society within punk rock and just bring all the judgment and all their insecurities and all their hangups and, and, and just voice it on people like happens in regular society. And it's, yeah, like it's, it's so depressing that it kind of, <laughs> that is such a universal yeah. experience. Do, do you remember a band called the celibate rifles? Absolutely. God, yeah. classic band. Yeah. They're, they're, so they're friends of ours. And um, when we're at school, we used to go and see them and stuff. And they, they were, um, I guess Kent, Kent was four years older than myself. So when I was a teenager, he was in his early 20s. And mm. Damien was, the lead singer was much older than us. I think Damien was maybe eight or nine years older than me. Um, but we used to go and see them and and we became friends with them. We used to, when the hard on started playing, we used to play with them and stuff. And Damien Lovelock, um, the lead singer, he liked our music, but what he was also interested in the hard-ons for the three of us having three different skin colors. Mm. And he was one of the first people to actually um, talk to us at length about 
that fact. Um, and he said that, uh, I remember him telling us that we're in a really, really good position, um, the hard-ons. And I said, why? He said, well, because you've only started and you guys are a pretty good representation of the Australian society. And he said, uh, you, you know, the only thing you could do now is find a fella who's uh, indigenous and get him to join your band and you would become the most perfect band for Australian society. Uh, he, he said it in a half-joking kind of a way, mm. but he said, well, you're already, you're already different skin colour, so you already have things to talk about, don't you? And I said, uh, yeah, I think so. And he said, and he was, he was uh, uh, outpacing my brain with his words, if you know what I mean. He was yeah. just saying all these things that I'd never really thought deeply about, you know, this we didn't have that deep self-reflection about the hard-ons at the stage. Um, all we wanted to do was make real loud noise and become and and act irresponsibly and um, obnoxiously because uh, it it riled people up and um, we, we're having a great time doing it. And at the same time, our songs were good, so we backed ourselves to be a good live band. But Damien said, uh, "You already have." Um, huge, huge um, things going for you because of your skin color. You're already aliens, and he called me an alien. I said, "Well, he's actually right." He said, "What do you?" I think what he meant was you're already alienated. So already punk rock speaks to you, and you speak to punk. So you're already there. So that's a really good thing. So you have more to say about society than a lot of middle class white kids in another band. So you're in a good position. You should take full advantage of it. I said, I guess we are. We're doing that, you know? Um, mm. So I, then I thought about it. Then I realized that, um, you know, punk rock was really made for me because as, a, as an immigrant kid, um, no music's going to say the right things to me better than punk rock, you know? I mean, what's going to make more sense to me, Damien? I'm stranded and smash it up or Led Zeppelin's Cashmere. You know what I mean? Yeah. I'm, an immigrant, I'm an immigrant kid getting teased at school. What's going to do me favours? What's going to get my mojo up? Mm. You know, I'm stranded by the Saints, you know? Yeah, of course. Uh, of course punk rock speaks to me. I was an immigrant, so I was already there waiting for punk rock to you know land in my lap to say something about my life and that's what it did and and it probably happened to you too he probably said something to you really profound well i find it's like the and this comes up time and time again it's the only place as a young person where you're told what you say has value and no matter who you are you should say it and i think that's you know there's a lot of music in this world but very few are like that where it's like like you were saying earlier you know you don't have to woodshed for years trying to learn how to play riffs it's like pick up that guitar and get out there and just say what you need to say and and make your statement by being by being there and yeah like that's what i think is so powerful about it i think so and that's why i think punk rock 
has always had this parallel with, in the arts world, things like the Dada movement, um, you know, uh, surrealist uh, artwork, even things like really unusual uh, things like cubism. Uh, then, of course, you had in, in the in the world of um, well, academic music, you had parallels with things like John Cage or Stockhausen, you know, really ridiculously upside down concepts of what's right and what's wrong, you know, and those things are really beautiful. And that's, it's, to me, that's life affirming, you know, yeah. um, going against the grain is life affirming. And I think that's what, what um, a lot of young people, uh, when they, when they, when they don't know a lot of things about life, um, punk rock really does make a lot of sense because um, human, for me, it was human nature to try and go against the grain. And in my case, I was already going against the grain because of my skin color in this country. And punk rock gave some kind of uh, impetus and uh, uh, legitimate reasons to um, get up and do something, you know, involving the creative part of your brain um and you know anytime something goes against the grain you know it, it's really really exciting and but it's not made for everybody i have to admit punk rock's not made for everybody some people just don't like it and that's i think that's fair enough too yeah but for no, me it makes sense yeah no definitely and i think like you're saying it's it's like the street it's like the the real authentic street music meets this heady art world kind of head on where you can have, you can have a, a, a thing where you have a band like the slug fuckers, and then you also have the hard ons. And then you also have the celibate rifles. Like all three of you are, have completely different approaches to this thing called punk rock. Yet all three of you put out classic records that go all over the world and influence people like on different scales, obviously, but like, you know, it's amazing. I love the slug fuckers. Hang on a second. <laughs> you like the slug fuckers? You know I do. Look at that. Two slug fuckers into classics. Oh my god, you got three slug fuckers into classics. That's awesome. No, I, I am a huge I love fan. You know, oh, they're, they're incredible, right? Not, yeah. They don't sound like anything else. Nope. I remember when, when we were kids, um, uh when we went to this uh import record store uh there was a there was a cassette they had a slug fuckers cassette it had all these dolphins printed on it and uh blackie the guitar player from the hard-ons bought the cassette and then he didn't have enough money to buy the transformational salt lp that was on the wall yeah and uh, I had just enough money to buy a train ticket to go home and something else. I think it was another punk rock record. And and I said to the guy behind the counter, I said, do you think that'll be here tomorrow when I come back? He said, I don't know. I go, ah, can you hold it for me? He's like, well, uh, can you put a deposit? I'm like, well, I don't have enough money. I've got to get home. And <laughs> I came back. It was gone. Uh, it got reissued anyway. I bought the reissue. Yeah, yeah. No, there's it's it, there. You know, like it's it's the ones that always slip through your fingers that you remember forever. You know, it doesn't matter how oh, many yeah, great yeah. records you have. It's the ones that you the ones that got away that haunt you. Oh man, 
Do you remember that band? Um, um, uh, oh, geez. What's what's that Australian band? The the Severed Heads. You know the Severed Heads. Yeah, yeah. Um, do you know the rec album Clean? They had an album called Clean, and it was one of their first records. And it just it's it's one of the hardest records to listen to, <laughs> and um, it, it's worth it's priceless now. But I remember going to the record store. They had a a crate of them. They had a crate <laughs> of them. Yeah. For for two dollars each. <laughs> And I bought one, and the first time I listened to it, I said, I, I can't listen to this. I said, I'll be I'll be deported from Australia if I own this record. This is incredible. <laughs> so anyway, I gave it to an old school friend. Now that record's worth a, a fortune, I think. Yeah. Anyway, just just as a side note, that single you were telling us about, uh, the uh, All Set to Go single, that the Hard-Ons record that you had mm -hmm. with the three of us dressed as Ku Klux Klan, we made a film clip for that song, and uh, the the cameraman, the guy who set everything up, was uh, Tom Elliard uh, from the Severed Heads. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's and awesome. I said I used to have yeah, and I said I used to have one of your records, and he said, "What happened to it?" I said, "I gave it away." He said, "Right." <laughs> <laughs> Didn't like it, huh? Or not at the time, but I regret it now. <laughs> and I said. Do you have any spare copies lying around your house? And he said, "No, I don't." <laughs> yeah, I've been looking for that record ever since. But well, it goes on eBay for a few hundred bucks, and I can't spend that much kind of money. Oh yeah, well, and at the risk of going back to talking about sketchy, horrible stuff, were the Quick and the Dead still around when when you guys started playing, or were they already gone? Yeah, um, they were already gone. They yeah. were definitely already gone. But um, we were too young to see them. We used to see their name around. But you're talking about, you know, a lot of those M squared bands um, were playing around, but we we're kind of too young. But we did go and see a band called, do you remember that band, Yaya Corral? Only by the name, yeah. Yeah. There were another M squared band, and um, we went and saw them play. And, you know, it was two people on stage with machines. And I was like, what are we doing here? <laughs> but, they were fan but they were fantastic. They were fantastic. We got drunk and we, we, um, you know, we were calling out things like drum solo and things like that. And, you know, yeah. But yeah, a lot of those bands, um, they, a lot of those bands were just before we were old enough to be able to go and see them and things like that, you know? Well, I, I find that really interesting too, because, you know, there's that first wave we were talking about of Australian stuff that really, really hits. And then it seems like there's a sort of like 82 to right when you guys put out Surfing on My Face. And then there's almost like another wave of bands. Like, and once again, I'm miles away how I'm interpreting it. But was there like kind of like a a little bit of a quieter period between, you know, the where you guys really start going and where that first sort of scene kind of crests for a little bit? Um, You're talking about... Which which period did you think was like, quiet? Like eighty two to kind of like eighty four. Yes, um, that period to me um, was uh, the only reason I thought that period was quiet was because um, that was that eighty two to eighty four. That actually no, no, I don't think it was quiet because that was when we used to go and see bands like the Scientists, and they used to play mm. every weekend, and. Um, there's a band that's uh, a really heavily influential band in Australia called X, uh, you know, sim uh, similar to the, I don't want to go you know, out. Just, uh, the, uh, yes, absolutely. that's right. 
we used to go and see them all the time. That's and, awesome. Um, they they were um, they were um, uh, yeah they 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 would play almost every weekend. We'd see them almost every weekend in Sydney. That was 1983. Mm. They were playing all the time. So I don't think it was that quiet, but I think definitely after 84, there was a massive, massive explosion of younger bands just yeah. totally taking over because um, that time was when bands like the Scientists went overseas to, you know, the bands like Scientists and the Go-Betweens and, and the Triffids, um, they they went overseas. Uh, Nick Cave uh, and the birthday party traveled overseas, and that that's where they were. They moved, right? Uh, I think they moved. They all yeah. moved, and uh, the scientists moved overseas, and they didn't come back until I think 1988. Mm. But we saw them almost every weekend. Every time they were playing, we would see them. And um, uh, but but yeah, the younger bands basically overran the place after 85 i think yeah. um with all these small labels just taking over and that was i guess that that was when uh we were lucky enough to be playing with all those bands at the time um and it was very fertile a uh, lot of bands a lot of places to play and to be you know uh, without being biased a lot of really good records came from that period as well um, definitely I think I think the most popular bands from that period of eighty four to uh, eighty four to maybe nineteen ninety were bands like the Celebrate Rifles and the Lime Spiders. They were definitely really popular, and bands like the Meanies became popular um, in Melbourne. There were lot, lots of uh, bands like uh, Ice Beat on Your Gravy were really popular. Painters and Dockers, lots and lots of bands, and um, you, you certainly didn't run out of things to do on a uh, on a uh, any night of the week, um, but yeah, but to me the the biggest band from any of that period was X. They were the most probably the most influential band for uh, for the Hard Ons because uh, uh, in 1983 um, the Hard Ons had not played uh, a pub pub show. Um, we were playing high school dances and and whatnot because we were too young to play in pubs and. Uh, uh, we saw a poster in a record store, Red Eye Records. It said X, better than sex. The return of X. And I'm, I'm, I said to Chris behind the counter, I said, is that the X? I don't want to go out. Exasperations, you know, victims of delinquent cars. Is that the X with Steve Lucas and Ian Rylands? That's the X. And I thought, I thought they broke up. It's like, well, they're reforming apparently. So we went to this concert and it was just brutal it was like an apocalypse a musical apocalypse and it, we learned a lot from that concert and it was one of the most to this day it was one of the most violent concerts i've ever seen you know like the the fists and the kicks and and the gang violence it was brutally violent and it was probably the only time in my life i saw somebody running away from a horde of angry skinheads slipping on blood oh, wow. of his, there was a pool of blood and this guy slipped on this pool of blood and then just people taking turns, kicking one person. And all the while, there's this music in the background. I'm like, what do I do? Do I try and help this long-haired hippie 
getting gang bashed by these shaven-headed thugs, or do I watch history being made by X? I'm like, well, fuck, I'm 17. What can I do? Ah, fuck it, I'll just watch the band. <laughs> what, what can I do? <laughs> yeah. um, I weigh 53 kilograms. You know, what, I didn't have, what am I supposed to do? I just went, ah, oh, well, I'm just going to watch the band. Oh, the band is incredible. The history is being made. It was, it was um, to this day, the most violent thing I'd ever seen. But the, the music was incredible. It was life-changing. So we, um, we went and saw um, X almost every time they played. And we, we eventually got a concert uh, with them. We got a, a show with them. And um, that was a, a, you know, a life-changing moment there, you know. Um, Ian asked uh, Angry Anderson the, the leasing of Roast Tattoo because he was in Roast Tattoo at one stage and yeah. he turned up. I remember that's the guy from Roast Tattoo. He was in the <laughs> concert. And 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 years later, he told me, yeah, Ian dragged me to the gig. He said, you got to see these guys. They're really funny, <laughs> you know, the hard-ons, you know. And so we played with X and I, I would ask Ian, how do you play bass like that? Because, you know, he's got a really distinctive way of playing. I said, yeah. show me how to play like that. And you know, he um, he put up with all my stupid teenage questions like, how do you make those dead notes? You know, you get do, 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 like those dead notes. And he said, oh, well, you can do it with the palm of your right hand or you can do the fingers on your left hand on the, on the fret. And I said, how do you do it? He said, I do it depending on the song. I do it either way. And I said, what should I do? He said, work it out yourself. <laughs> you know, it's good advice. Yeah. So were they attracting that kind of fan base, like the violent skinhead fan base, or is that just like who was populating shows at Sydney at that time? It was just that concert because yeah. when I went and saw the next time I saw X, the skinheads weren't there. So I guess it was because it was a high profile return of X gig. It was absolutely jam packed full of all sorts of people, you know? Mm -hmm. And, um, and so it was just 50 cups everywhere, a lot of violence everywhere. But I think, to this day, we were talking about why we didn't. That all the guys in the the hard ons were there. We were with a bunch of guys in another band called the Spunk Bubbles, mm. another Australian band. But those guys hadn't formed as a band yet. But it was there was a group of us, and we figured out that well, the guitar player from the Spunk Bubbles at the time of that concert would have been like fifteen or sixteen, you know. Yeah. So I think we figured out the only reason we survived getting damage physically was because we're too young they just left us alone we weren't a threat to them you know we're like okay we're just gonna watch the band here you know because it's very dangerous but um but the shows back then were quite yeah a lot of the punk rock shows degenerated into uh violence and it's um you know if anyone says uh do you remember the good old days i always say to them it wasn't always good you know yeah. the, the violence is gone and i think that's a great thing People just would not put up with that kind of stuff anymore. You know? Would the violence happen when it was like, because I noticed, you, you know, there's it, throughout the uh, like 80s into the, obviously the late 80s into the 90s, there's like three kind of big, huge labels. There's like the one that's doing more hardcore stuff than the one that's doing more kind of like noise rocky stuff. And then Waterfront Records doing more kind of like anthemic punk stuff. Was it when crowds mix that you'd have fights, or is it just like once again, just like the kids that would show up that looking for trouble? No, there. Were, I think there was um, 
a, a core of core of pretty fascist people mm. in the punk rock scene mm-hmm. that would go they would kind of i don't know i think they used to have a roster system you know you know you hando and chuck you guys go to the feed time gig on that that night and cause trouble yeah. and uh jono and robbo you go on Thursday night to Governor's Pleasure and cause trouble at that gig. And it was almost like, you know, it's like, when are you going to grace us with your presence and start beating people up, you know? Yeah. Um, we, we, we didn't know where, where they were going to turn up or when they were going to turn up, but you could take a good guess. Uh, you know they weren't, like, huge music fans. They were just into violence. So you just kind of go, well, let's see. Permanent Damage from Melbourne playing with Vicious Circle. Ah, uh, that might get violent. So maybe I don't know. I might, I might take a raincoat, you know. Yeah. Make yeah. sure that I don't get splattered with blood or whatever, you know. I've seen people get stabbed with broken drumsticks at concerts. It's, you know, it's it's a horrible scene. But um, uh, you just didn't know when when they were going to turn up and for what reason. You, you couldn't go up and go, excuse me, how come you came to that concert and not the one that was on last week? You know, you yeah. didn't want to ask that question either. You know. Could you give us a clue? When they can I see your roster? When are you going to turn up next so I, I can avoid your presence? <laughs> you could, I don't know. I don't know when they're going to turn up. But uh, yeah, the good thing was you could, you know, um, you go with a lot of friends, avoid trouble, enjoy the music, you know, let them become someone else's problem, which might not be the right attitude to have. But what else can you do? Did were there bands and was there a scene that kind of like cultivated that fan base? Like you hear obviously stuff on the west coast of the united states right like there are certain bands that attracted a certain type of fan base or like you're saying are these they're like they're not music fans they're just looking for the violence wherever it's happening whether they can make it happen i should say well some of them used to come to hard ons concerts as well mm. um so you couldn't really work out where they were going and why but there were certain there were uh, some of the uh bands without naming some names they it was obvious that they were attracting a certain crowd so after a while you know after a few shows with them you you think well maybe we don't need to play with that band anymore maybe we can play with i don't know um the celibate rifles or someone like that yeah. where you know <laughs> those people are um uh, are not going to have such a huge crowd mind you i've seen bad violence at uh, celibate rifle shows as well um uh, so, I, I mean, I've seen um, Damien Lovelock get into a scuffle with um, a skinhead on stage, you know. So, yeah, it was, I think it was a whimsical wheel of fortune. They probably just spun the wheel and went, <laughs> we'll, get, we'll go to the Lone Spiders concert and cause trouble on Friday night. Yeah, yeah, wherever the yeah. cheapest ticket is and the cheapest beer is probably. Yeah, but, um, you know, that, that stuff's gone. They, that stuff was gone by the time... Um, the nineties came around and mm-hmm. you know, it was, it was great that he did, I think. Yeah. And it feels like that happens once again, like this is almost like a worldwide thing where obviously fascism still around today. So it's not like it went away, but at the same time, like the Nazi skinhead problem crests almost at a certain point, like in the late eighties, like you're saying, and then the nineties it's, it's, it's obviously around, but it's not as, it doesn't seem like it's as much of a threat as it once was. I think that's true. And I think um, another thing is that um, human beings, as a general rule, are becoming a little bit more uh, enlightened as well. Mm. You know, uh, 
I think uh, in Australia, for example, we laugh about this. You know, we've got friends who say, listen, my 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 father's not a racist. He had Chinese food last night. You know, you know, they, they you know, but, the, you know, the thing is in Australia, um, that really violent, from what I know, that really violent punk rock skinhead scene was somehow um, related to, uh, it was a direct descendant of the Sharpies and, you know, the the violent, um, um, yeah, the violent, um, the street gang scene of Australia. Yeah. yeah. That's, that's not that I would know, but that's what I've been told. It, it's the, the direct descendant from it, you know? So as, as Australia becomes more um, multiracial with more immigration, because Australia is such a big country with not many people in the eighties, these immigrants were coming to make Australia work better because we certainly didn't have enough people to make things work. You know, mm -hmm. there weren't enough people manning workstations to um, make the world um, us to compete uh, on an economic level with the rest of the world. So there was there was some immigration um, and there were also uh, influx of people like Vietnamese refugees and, and whatnot. And um, there, were, there was a wave of immigrants from uh, Pacific Islands, uh, Polynesian um, nations, Tonga, Samoa, and all these people contributed to making uh, the dominant uh, people in Australia, the white people, kind of go, hey, maybe it is a big wide world and this is kind of cool, you know? And I think uh, Australians became way more enlightened as things went on, mm. I think. Mm. And uh, eventually that kind of stuff, uh, you must admit, um, having that kind of a violent lifestyle wasn't sustainable to you because at, at some stage... At some stage, uh, somebody very close to you was going to start going out with a Vietnamese girl, <laughs> you know, or one day somebody was, you're going to be really, really, really hungry. And the only thing left, the only thing left is uh, a, a shop selling uh, Malaysian food and you've got to eat it, otherwise you'll die. And, you know, I mean, you, you're going to come, you, you, you're going to think that, being a white power guy in a country like Australia is not sustainable. It's not, it's, it's not working for you very well. You know? Well, like what you were saying earlier though, the cognitive dissonance is so severe with these people that they're able to play Chuck Berry riffs and scream white power lyrics over top of them. You know, like they, they really don't understand how much they depend on, like you're saying, like immigration to make the country work, you know, like there's a reason people came uh, you know it, it, because it was needed that's the reason the country opened their doors you know like countries i don't know it's it's fascinating how how just clueless this world i know we keep coming back to this and i don't mean to keep harping on it but i feel it's such a like a unfortunate part of punk rock but at the same time it's just it's ridiculous to look at when you when you start really breaking it down it's it's amazing and and uh you, I don't know if you talked to Jello about this, but he's told me some incredible stories about uh, skinheads and uh, Nazi punks in 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 America. He he's told me some incredible stories, mm. um, and 
and and I think well, it's all I can put it down to is this: that there's something really intense about a punk rock concert. You know, um, you have a you think that uh, a certain percentage of the white population is hostile and is an idiot, but then in the punk rock uh, concert, if there are 300 people, that small percentage of um, unhinged, idiotic, white power person, uh, you know, they stand out quite a lot because mm. you're in a smaller pool, you know, and they really make themselves uh, be known, you know. And then you couple that with incredibly loud, violent music, then of course it, it probably becomes a volatile keg or whatever. So, you know, I think the greatest thing about punk rock. It's oral violence, and that free-for-all attitude is probably its own worst enemy as well. I don't know. But it's something, it, you know, it's happened. It's always been there. Uh, but I guess that's what we had to live with. I mean, even back in in the 70s, you had people like Susie Sue, who put out some incredible records of Susie and the Banshees, walking around wearing a swastika, you know? Mm-hmm. Uh, the Sex Pistols, one of the most influential bands, the bass player had a swastika on his T-shirt. You know those those edge of the edge of the cultural seat um, kind of attitude towards um, uh, shock and awe. You know, uh, one day it might come back and um, bite you, but at the time when you're just making hay because you're into punk rock and you're into shock, you're into doing whatever the hell you want. Um, you don't really count the cost, do you? Um, no. And um, and I yeah. think, in you know, a lot of ways, um, people do grow up. I mean, I read an interview with Susie Sue where she said um, she regretted that swastika thing, you know? Mm. So I think, well, that's good. I mean, you don't have to pretend it didn't happen. You just go, oh, I grew up. I grew out of it, you know? And it was wrong. That's okay too, you know, I think. But um, I don't know. I, I've met, a, you know, Damien, I've met a lot of... Um, actually people from the skinhead scene who actually told me that they grew up and they, you know, I mean, they're on Facebook. They've married Asian women and stuff, you know? So they, they, people do grow up. Mm -hmm. I I think it was a really horrible snapshot of a horrible past. That's all it is. You know, hopefully a lot of those people have moved on. Yeah. And, and, and I think the other thing is that, you know, like you're saying it predates, the Nazi skinhead thing, it goes back to the Sharpies, like you were saying, or it goes back to like, you know, racist, you know, gangs have existed, racists have existed for a lot longer than Nazi skinheads have. But it was when that, when these hate groups started looking at these scenes and seeing the same thing you're talking about, like these angry kids and this oral violence and disenfranchised young people. And they were like, oh, this is where we can recruit people. Like, this is where we can go in. And and it became like an active thing for them to try and turn people that were weak or looking for something into yeah. a foot soldier. Yeah. Well, in, in, in Sydney, from what I remember, none of those people were, there was a handful of people who were actually recruited for um, uh, political purposes. I remember a couple of those guys used to belong to like actually politically affiliated groups and whatnot, and they were actually recruited but most of them that I met were just, just your garden variety idiots, mm. you know, mm-hmm. and uh, 
to be honest, hopefully they grew out of it, you know. And and I did um, have a friend of mine who um, contacted me once and said, hey, do you remember such and such? And I won't mention his name. I said, yeah. He goes, well, shit, man, I had a I had a discussion with him and he, he regrets um, – he regrets uh, threatening you at uh, a such and such gig. And I go, well, that was uh, 30 years ago, or, you know, or something like that. He said, yeah, he said he regrets it. He goes, oh, he's kind of grown up. And I go, well, good for him, <laughs> you know. <laughs> but I haven't really thought about it. Oh, wow. But, you know, I thought that was good news, you know. Yeah. But people do change, I suppose. Yeah. I guess going back to something a little more pleasant to talk about the oral violence that was going on or oral violence that's happening at the same time. Uh, so did you guys play with like feed time and those, and those types of bands like the aberrant records bands? No. Um, Bruce who runs aberrant records, he's, um, one of my best friends mm. he's a, he's been, he was at the, the very, very first bunch of hard on shows. Bruce has always been there at the start Bruce, generally speaking, his taste in music runs more towards um, the really harsh sounds like Grong Grong, Feed Time, and things like that. But he also really, I mean, he also really loves the Buzzcocks and uh, and the Damned and things like that as well, the more melodic stuff. Yeah. He he really likes the hard-ons. And, and to this day, we keep in touch. But... Um, I used to go and see feed time quite often uh, through Bruce. I used to meet Bruce there and stuff. And, but we never got to play with them, but um, I did get to know the feed time guys and um, um, the nicest guys you could meet. Um, in terms of King snake roost, for example, we've played with King snake roost probably once. Hmm. Uh, you know, we were friends with Charlie. Um, we were friends with a couple of the other guys in the band. Um, who else? Uh, we used to play with Venom P. Stinger quite often. I don't know if you know those guys. Yeah, definitely. Venom P. Stinger. Yeah, so we played with them a few times. And uh, Al, the bass player, has passed away now. But, um, you know, he'd always come and see us play every time we play Melbourne. Um, and Jim, of course, um, uh, now plays in um, – he plays in 33 now. And so we still um, – we used to play with a, a little bit of those um, – abrasive bands but on the whole um on the whole the hard-ons would play with anyone who would ask us and we'd play with uh, all sorts of different bands we'd play with x we'd play with scientists we'd play with the celibate rifles of course the lime spiders we'd play with the moths which is a psychedelic pop band we'd play with rat cat which is an out and out pop band um but um i think that was one of the 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 luckiest streaks for the hard-ons that that we could play with anyone we really wanted to yeah uh i mean we play with the wreckery uh we played with the crime and the city solution we played with tism we played with so many different bands but um as a general rule we did not play too many times with bands like king snake roost or or feed time and we never played with grong grong although we've seen them play but we've seen all these bands play we, we just never uh shared a bill with them um, which is a bit of a shame. I, I guess we probably should have played with these bands a bit more. It's interesting because that comp that you guys are on, that that Why March When We Can Riot comp, like the first one, uh -huh. the first Aberrant Records, like it's amazing how 
like sonically diverse it is, especially compared to where that catalog would go, where it gets a lot more refined in what they have. But like, you know, yourselves and the XL Capris and even uh, Johnny Dole and the Scabs and stuff like that on that comp. Like, it feels like it's interesting how everything was so separate because, yeah, like it is, it does sound so great together on that comp. Oh, yeah. Look, um, I think Jelly Biafra um, said that when he came to Australia, he realized how um, the diverse the Australian underground music scene was, that mm. it was like a free-for-all and it wasn't so segmented. And, um, you know, um, you know, the whole scene with things like, um, uh, you know, Straight Edge, for example, Straight mm. Edge scene, uh, the yeah. New York hardcore scene and stuff. Um, you, you, as great as that music is, you could clearly see that it belongs to one sub context of, um, of punk rock. Mm -hmm. And clearly those bands have uh, a very similar sound and ethos. Those hardcore straight edge bands, for example, they have kind of like a, um, uh, a distinct, um, image and sounds for example and the lyrical content for example um australia didn't really have that kind of stuff it was everyone would kind of try and play with everyone else it was mm -hmm. a real free-for-all in a lot of ways mm -hmm. um maybe because the population was smaller um and maybe because the cities had less people i don't know but every everyone seemed to know each other for example um no one seemed to really dislike each other as well there was there was None of this. I used to read about scene rivalry in America. You know, people yeah. bands hating each other. Yeah, it is just that just didn't happen in in Australia. You know, bands. You know, you'd read about oh, this band from this place would hate that band, whatever. You know, or somebody in somebody in some band would say something bad about another band. Or, I would think that was just that was uh, unthinkable in Australia. Everyone just got along with each other pretty well. Mm. Um, so, um, yeah, we had a really diverse scene and, um, it would, it'd be weird because you, you go to, a you go to a concert and you'd see, um, some kid with, uh, you know, really short cropped hair and dressed like a, a typical American punk rocker dude, you know, like a skateboarder punk, you know, with a, with look like someone from, uh, um dys concert in the front yeah. row you know yeah. ready yeah. to do some spinning kicks and that kind of stuff you know but you just look at that guy and go well he'd, he'd be the one standing out you just and um but it, i know if, uh that in by the time 90s came around uh this is way after the hard-ons had broken up and that kind of stuff i know that kind of uh that that hardcore that hardcore look and sound became really popular in Australia. But by that time I was already in my, um, I was already in my thirties. Uh, and so I didn't really go to too many of those shows because mm. I, you know, I was doing other things, you know, watching other types of bands and stuff like that. But um, yeah, that, that kind of um, that monocultural scene thing um, uh, didn't really, didn't really take off in Australia until the nineties. I don't think, you know, from what I know. So, yeah. and I can't really speak about punk bands or hardcore bands from the, the early nineties onwards because I was just, wasn't there. I was mm. playing, playing music in 
by myself, you know? So, yeah. Yeah. There's like, and I think that's another spot where my knowledge kind of wanes a little bit. Like obviously I know rupture and mind snare and some of the bands that kind of like had, I guess, international releases nailed down, I think as well, but right, right. it's really that sort of like that, that sort of like, I don't know, hard rock and roll type of punk that, you know, and it seems like that's kind of come back too. like a lot of the kids that, and a lot of the younger bands I know now, they're not, you know, trying to sound like nineties beatdown core. They're trying to sound like, old school Australian punk and you know, old school Australian rock and roll. It feels like, Oh, you mean, you mean like bands like, uh, Emily and the sniffers and bands like that. Them and even, uh, what are they called? Like, uh, wax and, uh, the chats and all right. Okay. You know, like I, I don't, I'm not an expert in all this stuff, but when we went over last time we played with a bunch of younger bands and I'm like, Oh wow. These are like, like these bands could have been on waterfront, you know, or they could have oh, been, right. you know, like it feels like that's kind of, that energy's still there. Oh, okay. Yeah. Look, I feel a bit um, ashamed that um, I don't know a lot of these bands and what they sound like. I mean, I saw the chats play because we played with them and I thought they were fantastic. Mm. But um, I've never seen Emily and the Sniffers play and I've, I've heard them and they sound pretty good. Um, but uh, I, I certainly don't know that much about... Um, a lot of these bands um uh, it's probably because of my age and mm -hmm. i'm not going out to watching doing watching bands but my my taste in a lot of music um you know i, I don't know what it is but i think maybe because from 1984 until the time we broke up in 1993 the hard ones played relentlessly we played that many shows it felt like we'd never had a break we would always doing something recording or touring and maybe we had already that in that 10 year period between 1984 to 1993 maybe we od'd on uh punk rock you know and <laughs> yep. you know and it's and then and my friends were who were still watching bands were saying come along you need to go and see this band and this band and this band and i'll say um not tonight well, what, you got something better to do? I go, well, not necessarily better, just different, you know? Mm -hmm. um, so um, so I, I kind of bypassed a lot of the what was happening with punk rock um, we, in Australia. So I'm not really qualified to talk about um, uh, a lot of those bands. I, and But when I hear certain bands, someone says, this band is from 1997. They're from Sydney. Have a listen. And I go, well, that sounds pretty cool. But I've got to tell you, there's, there's a lot more to life than hardcore punk, you know, I guess. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, no, it's a, it's, a, it's a rich world out there. And, and I think that's, especially when you're in a band and you have to do it for a living. It's like, I remember yeah. I, met, I met Johnny Ramone one time. And yes. I was like, are you ever going to play guitar again? This is after they had, you know, broken up. And he's like, no. I'm never going to play guitar again. He did a little bit, I think, mm. but like, mm. he was like, I have no interest in doing it. Like I, I did it, you know, that's all I did for yeah. so long that why would I, why would I bother now? And it was yeah, one of those yeah. things where it's like, yeah, I guess you can burn out on this thing because there's only so much serotonin and so much joy, you know? Yeah. But you know, with Johnny Ramone, 
he if you listen to the first three Ramones records and you listen to his guitar sound, he he doesn't have to do anything else. You know, mm-hmm. those, those things um he's he's etched himself into um uh the human race, no problems. Mm-hmm. And uh as far as his political beliefs and all that stuff, people said he was right wing. I, I don't care. Because I go, well, I'm not, uh, I'm not, I'm not going to invite him to dinner and talk about politics. I'm going to listen to his guitar playing, you know. And I, I think a lot of people forget about when it comes to things like um, um, people's political beliefs in in certain punk bands and stuff like that. Um, personally, I can't. I, for better or worse, my family has always voted left wing, you know. Mm-hmm. But that's just me. Mm-hmm. But, you know, there are a few people that um, have said things like, I'm not going to listen to the Ramones because I found out that Johnny Ramone was a Republican. I go, well, yeah, but even if you do think that Republicanism is pure evil, what, you know, every human being contributes negatively and positively. Now, you can't tell me that Johnny Ramone's guitar tone, a guitar playing on the first Ramone's record is not a positive contribution to the human race because it is. Mm. By the same token, I said, listen to me, right? I went to university with a friend of mine. He was a cad. He was, he was a horrible human being. Now, this guy, he did all sorts of horrible things. I won't go into detail because he might be watching this podcast <laughs> but he, he he did some morally very questionable things yeah involving um you know he he robbed he he he, he did some horrible horrible morally questionable things you mm-hmm. know you know he was a bully he belittled people he was a snob he was a total out and out asshole but guess what he did uh he uh he studied science and he contributed to making um, incredible advances in certain um, scientific fields, and in, and what he did saved a few lives, right? Lots of lives across the world. Yeah. So you don't you don't boycott his research. You know what I mean? Well, he he contributed. Yeah. No, I I read the uh, Have you read Transformer, the Lou Reed biography? No, no. I'm reading it, and as I'm reading it, I'm like, I don't know if this is going to make me like his music more or less you know it's just yes. you know because he he was a, a brilliant songwriter like one of the greatest songwriters of all time but right. i think it's kind of irrefutable that he was also kind of an asshole and right would he have been that songwriter if he wasn't an asshole it, we, we don't know we don't know yeah. we don't know <laughs> all we can say is that if you can write a song like sunday morning mm. right mm-hmm and if you didn't write any other songs other than heroin and Sunday morning and maybe um, maybe rock and roll off the third album, uh, of the fourth album, you know, I mean, he wrote what, what's, what goes on, you know, on the third album. And yeah. now, you can't dispute that they're not valuable, 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 monumental contributions to the human race. So that's the good part of Lou Reed giving a gift to the world. Mm. He might have been a tyrant, but that's the gift to the world. Look what he's done. And uh, do we know that his music hasn't saved people's lives? I know he's changed my life. 
for the better. But uh, maybe he was rude to somebody. I mean, if he ended up being a waiter in a restaurant, he would have been the worst waiter in the world. It I wouldn't want to go. So to bad. Yeah. yeah, but he's not serving me food, you know? Yeah. yeah. He's not serving me food. He's writing songs for me. Yeah. So all I want from Lou is his songs. I don't care about him not tipping taxi drivers. I don't care about that, any of that stuff. Yeah. I just care about his music. So uh, if, if I don't separate, uh, if I don't take contributions from individuals as uh, separate contributions to my well-being and humanity's well-being, then I miss out. And I don't want to miss out. I don't want to miss out on what these assholes have got to give me. Now, if I met Lou Reed, I said, tell me everything about yourself, Lou. And he'd say, I'm this and this and this and this. And after half an hour, I decided, you're the biggest asshole I've ever met. He said, I haven't finished, right? I haven't <laughs> yeah. finished. This is my first album with the Velvet Underground, right? These are my songs. And I go, right, game, set, match. <laughs> right? That's what I want. You know what I mean? Yeah. So, well, so I, I... we all we ha all have this ability to contribute positively and negatively. I, I we also like uh, fucked up did this song with this rapper Denzel Curry, who's like a young up and yes. well, no, he's a very popular rapper from Florida now, and uh, he he wanted to cover a Pantera song, and obviously the lead singer right. of Pantera has said some things over the years that are racist, and uh, he was like terrible, yeah, yeah, and he's like I'm not going to let him take this song for me like he wrote this song i love this song it's yeah. my song and yeah. let him see a black kid sing his song if that bothers him let him see it but i'm not going to let him ruin this song for me it's mine now and it's it's an interesting take like that's, obviously, that's the only attitude to have yeah yeah, yeah. And for me it was like i never really thought about it like that but like you're saying it is there is a a uh I don't know, like once you put something out into the world, it's not yours anymore. It becomes something that belongs to the world. And, and, uh, you know, you, you, it becomes part of our, our collective society thing. And the artist becomes less important once it's out there. That's exactly right. And, and, you know, a friend of mine, um, was telling me that he got, he loves, uh, Michael Jackson to death and, hmm. You know that record that he did called Thriller? I yeah. mean, yeah. that's an incredible album. I, I've got that album here. It's, it's an incredible album. But, uh, you know, this is, uh, you know, I grew up listening to punk rock and I think Thriller's incredible. And this friend of mine, Paul, he told me that he, he watched a documentary about Michael Jackson and the documentary had irrefutable evidence that Michael Jackson was a pedophile. And he got his Thriller record out um, and threw it in the garbage bin and said, I can't listen to Michael Jackson anymore. And I said, that, that would be your response. And he said, are you doing the same? I said, well, no. So why not? I said, well, because I am not making that direct link from pedophilia to that music. You know, I'm not making that direct link. What I'm doing is Michael Jackson has the ability to dispense good and bad to the world now i don't know all the ins and outs of his bad but the good i do know when he was being good when he was being good he was making that album thriller to me that's his positive to me that's his gift to the world so 
we'll take that. But if he were alive today and it was proven that he was a pedophile, he should be in jail. Absolutely no question. The way we deal with the way we deal with um, certain bad things, there are things in place in society that we've agreed upon to deal with them. Things like jail or or or, or um, fines or whatever. Um, you know, they, there are there are ways to deal with things, and I don't know if throwing a record in a bin is my way of dealing with someone because I'm not punishing Michael Jackson by doing that. I'm punishing me because I, <laughs> I want to hear Billie Jean. That's a great song. So yeah. I, I don't know. And I, I but I'll tell you something. If I don't throw that Michael Jackson record out, um, I don't think Paul, my friend, should judge me based on that, you know? You well, still haven't thrown that Michael Jackson record in the bin. I think you're a bad person. I go, you've made this distinction. You've made this connections of the dots. That's incredible. Well, and I, and I, you know, by the same token, I don't blame someone for never wanting to listen to it and for having to throw that record in the bin. Afterwards. That's right. Individual's choice. Yeah. Absolutely. And I think, yes. I think also the, the horrible reality is if we're going to get into pedophilia and, 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 violence against women in rock and roll there's a horrible history in so much and it's celebrated like i was just reading this giant piece about marilyn manson that came out and it's just like all the stuff that he did and bragged about and was made a rock star for mm. it's it's wild to see it all laid out to bear like that and that's just i think the yeah there's a lot a lot of records that would have to be thrown in the garbage um sadly it, it's 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 too it's to me it's too hard i mean do you know uh spade cooley the the violin player spade cooley i don't know I don't the country think so. so he's a country uh violin player his music is incredible but it's his lyrics are very misogynistic um but he he went to jail for um he went to jail for um uh beating his uh wife to death i believe oh wow but uh but um but he died uh during his he was giving a concert to his inmates and after uh, during the intermission uh, he had a heart attack backstage and he died but um i mean he's in jail so he's being dealt with you know what i mean mm. um i don't know do you do you stop selling his records um it's it's really hard and i don't think it's up to me to judge but i have a spay cooley record here um not that i listen to it very often but um i don't know if i'll get around to throwing it in the bin you know i, I don't know it's it's really it, it's fuck man we're, we're getting into uncharted territory here because we're we're doing a lot of revisionist um 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 moralizing you know mm. and and it's very hard to know who's right and wrong yeah so well, all i know is that wholesale judgment of people uh, is also probably not the right thing to do. Well, we used to live in another time where, you know, you could buy this record used and you weren't mm. benefiting the artist, you know, like if you wanted to hear it, you could buy a used copy of this album and that artist was not receiving any sort of, you know, monetary reward for it. But now we live in a time That's where right. every time you check out an artist, even if you're checking yeah. something out because it's terrible, they're getting yeah. a little bit of a kickback. So yeah. I think it's changed now 
kind of how you engage with art, even just because the mediums change so much. That's probably right. That to me, that just complicates things even further. I don't know what's going on, Damien. <laughs> I don't know. You know, Ray. I promise you, when I sat down with you, all I wanted to do was talk to you about record labels pressing. I didn't want to force you to have such a deep, philosophical, heavy conversation. So, I don't know. Maybe I failed you as an interview. Oh, I'm sorry. That's my fault. <laughs> no, no, it's not. No, it's, it's my been, fault. I'm sorry, Ray. But this has been amazing, and I've talked to you for a long time. Would you come back and do a part two at some point in the future? Oh, okay. Yeah, sure. No okay. problems. You got to go? No, I don't. But I just mean like we're obviously not going to get to my myriad of questions before uh, the time runs up tonight. And I've already been talking to you for a very long time. But yeah, like <laughs> I had no idea it was going to go this place. But I'm very excited it did because I don't know. I, I think we it's important to have these conversations. Oh, I, I think so. I, I think um. I think um, um, I think um, technology has um, grown so much recently, and it's thrown more questions than answers. Mm. Uh, to be honest, mm -hmm. I, I, I really I'm, I'm completely at sea with what is right and what's wrong, but I know that um, uh, a lot of um, a lot of what's happening is uh, division between people. People like not becoming uh, friends, becoming no longer friends based on uh, things I've seen on the internet and that kind of stuff. And that's that's a little bit to me. That's a little bit weird. But um, on the other hand, we've got things like podcasts where I can talk to you, <laughs> and you're in Canada somewhere. Yeah, I think that's fantastic. You know. Yeah. No. Like if I. I remember the first time I, I got, no, I, I definitely had the other pressing of girl. Uh, uh, no, I, I, I had, I had girl in the sweater, but I didn't have surfing in my face. And I remember meeting a guy at a subway station and buying the record off him in the subway station. And, and to think years later, here would be chatting about, you know, all this stuff with you. I got to love technology a little bit for that, you know, <laughs> like that. Oh. That's a really old record to surf in my face. That was 1985 Five, when it came yeah. out. Yeah. So how old would you have been then in 1985? Five. Yeah. Five. Yeah. You bastard. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. No, I didn't. I didn't. I bought it. This would have been uh, 1998. I think that I finally got a first press copy of it. Um, oh wow! It was a. Jeez. It took a long time to track down. <laughs> but, uh, I would have given you my copy. No, I could never believe me. Honestly, I, 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 it brings me like we're talking at the very start of this thing, searching for your records and finding your records br brings me so much joy, you know, like it's like, you know, and, and it has over the years, but like, cause now I've got so many, but it's like, it was always something like, oh shit, another hard on single. Like this one's going to be amazing. It's going to be awesome. And it's pretty streaming. Right. So you couldn't just check it out in the same way. Yeah, yeah, I love records. Uh, you know, do you know a band called The Victims? Oh my gosh, yeah, you played in The Victims too, right? I'm in The Victims now. That's fucking awesome. Now. That's amazing. Yeah. But you know, um, I I had to track those records that, that down. I ended up getting them in 1982 was when I got them. So a good few years after they came out mm. you know four or five years after they came out it's, it took me a while to get them but i found them and um 
they cost me back in 1982. They cost me $10 each, which is a lot back then, so, probably. It was records. a lot of money. Yes, I was in a. It was in, I was in high school, mm. so it cost me a lot. And I used to also have a victim's homemade T-shirt. And um, when I became friends with um, the drummer um, James, who was also in the Hoodoo Gurus, when we released that single, "Girl in a Sweater," our second single, James was our guest MC and DJ that night. <laughs> so, so he he brought his punk rock records and he was playing them uh, on the night. And um, I showed him the photograph that night. I said, hey, James, you know how, how I love the victims? And he said, yeah. I said, this is a photo of me wearing a victims T-shirt when I was in high school. He goes, oh, wow, you really like the band. And that was uh, 1985, because that's uh, 86, because that's when Girl in a Sweater came out. Mm -hmm. And years later, years later, he asked me to join his band. You know? That's awesome. And uh, yeah, just based on him, he knew that, they needed a bass player. I played bass, and I was the biggest Victims fan, you know. And I, um, I had those records, and um, but when I found those records, I, I played them over and over and over again. Um, you know, they're, they're just incredible records, and um, the stories that James and Dave, um, who's also a really dear friend of mine, the the singer. The stories they told me about the original days of punk rock, it was just incredible, you know? Yeah. Really just uh, invigorating, you know? Um, and, uh, and I showed him my copy of the second record, you know, the No Thanks to the Human Turd EP with the five songs on it. Yeah. So, yeah, so I showed him my copy, and it's in a book. Um, it's, a, it's in a book. Um, they did my copy, and I said, um, this is my copy. I'll just show you, Damien. Yeah. Oh wow, the hand done one. That's awesome. So, uh, so um, see, there's um some some shading there. Yeah, yeah. There's some drop shadow. There's some. Oh, that's there's awesome. some shading there. Yeah. And um, uh, Dave saw that and he said. That will be one of the first ten because <laughs> after the first because after the first ten, they stopped doing the sh the shadow behind the letters because they just got bored and they had to get through. They, we got to make two hundred and fifty of these motherfuckers. <laughs> so after the first ten, they basically stopped, and that one was probably done by Dave himself. Mm. Uh, yeah, it's got that pastel blue. He liked that. And um, I met, um, there was a band from um, uh, Perth called the Cheap Nasties. Mm -hmm. uh, they were an original punk band. And the guitar player from that band ended up in a band called the Mannequins as well. And Ken from the Mannequins and the Cheap Nasties actually came to the Victims reunion show. And he said to me, he was telling me he was one of the people that was at Dave's house in the lounge room painting all these <laughs> covers. Yeah. I love it's fast to me. That's all fascinating stuff. The, I, the, I, the history I, of punk rock. Well, that's the thing is like in a, it's like finding that history, you know, like getting the cramp singles where the light bulb and their logos glow in the dark, as opposed to when they got oh, wow. lazy and just did the logo <laughs> glow in the dark, you know, like finding out these stories, yeah. like, you know, that's what I love oh, wow. about collecting records. Like, you're actually touching the history. Oh, yeah, yeah. Absolutely. 
I, I, those those two victim singles are probably right up there with the Saints' first single as um, Australian anthems, you know. And mm. and I love those guys to death, James and Dave. They asked me to uh, join the band, and I said, "I'll join your band, but as a respect to the band, I'm not going to be a permanent member because a permanent member is." Um, um dave cardwell rudolph the bass player and they don't really get along with him anymore mm. so they said no no he's out of the band this is bad this band's going to continue because those songs are good i want you to play bass so um yeah it's been a complete what's the word um a dream come true dream come i mean true, they yeah. were my yeah, yeah they were my high school heroes you know <laughs> but not many uh, this is the thing dave said not many high school kids hold the victims as their idols you know there was probably one kid who did and that was me so they got me to play bass for them <laughs> well they, but they're a band that you know like granted not like the saints or radio birdman or even yourselves like internationally known type thing but the people that did hear the victims like anyone that hears those records are is, are are changed by it like those records are godly 100 percent. well they something happened in those recordings dave was telling me that um the guitar that they he used was from um uh one of those thrift shops you know those mm. charity stores and he cost him um uh, twenty dollars and yeah. it was called yeah so it was called a maya so it looked like a gibson sg but it was called a maya which was a cheap um i think chinese knockoff or something but some the, the guitar sound is really raw and something he said look and dave obviously formed the hoodoo gurus and they had incredible uh success uh in the mainstream and he said look i've played in many many um played on many many records but on that victim's record something happened something magical happens you know and uh we probably could never capture that recording ever again and i said you're probably right i don't know what happened but it was magic you know those two songs i'm flipped out over you and television addict something mm -hmm. happened and it was it was magical so when i joined the band i said dave i'll go and get my rickenbacker because that's what um that's what um uh dave the original bass player played and when we played those shows with the victims Dave used original vintage gear that he had for the victims originally, and I brought that Rickenbacker, and we it sounded really good. And there were the the front row of the people were people Dave and James's age, mm. um, older people. Um, they they were the people from Hernandez Hideout and those um, small concert halls that the victims used to play when there were thirty or forty people in the room. They were they had returned after all those years. You could see them with gray hair, gray beards. Um, they were at the concert and they said it sounded really good. It sounded like it sounded like when they I heard them play in 1977, but a little bit better. That's what they said. <laughs> yeah. And um made me really happy. Yeah. Yeah. Well yeah, that's and that's the thing about punk is like it's one of the few places where you can you can achieve that you can play with your heroes you can wind up being in a band with your heroes you can be standing in a room with yourself jack black and keith morris in australia one day you know like i i like punk is like this place oh. where that shit can happen yes and i think when we're talking about um 
uh, the violence in punk rock concerts before. I think maybe um, I probably shot my mouth off too much about it because when you think about it, it it's 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 punk rock really um, introduced me to. Uh, it was a beginning of discovering um, how much fun I can have being creative. You know, it really did, and and it, at the time it felt like. Um, and it still does feel like, um, uh, you know, the whole idea. Of punk, and when I say punk rock, I don't mean I mean punk rock as in uh, the original ethos and the idea of um, the free for all, as opposed to this um, really narrow. Some people have a really narrow view of punk, um, uh, but I, I have a very broad palette, you know, for punk. So, um, you know, uh, I'm. Some people might only just include no effects and Blink One Eight Two, but I would include <laughs> Chrome and Metal Urbane. You know what I yeah, mean? Yeah, absolutely. So, so, but you have to because those things, those things, um, for me anyway, those things are the 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 things that supercharge me to become uh, a guy in a band. You know, mm. so um, uh, I remember meeting um, Jolly Biafra. And we became friends. And um, I remember I had to do a DJ night one night. So I, I took a a box of records and I was doing it with Jello. And he went through my records. <laughs> and he goes, oh, that's a good one. He goes, what's that? And I told him. And, you know, so because he, he's always curious about records. Yeah. And there was a Hol Holiday in Cambodia record in there. And he said, what's that doing here? And I said, I, was, I brought that here so you can sign it to me. And he said, what do you want me to sign it for? And he, he meant it as in, um, uh, well, we're friends. What would you want my autograph? Yeah. But then I, I said, let me explain to you, right? When I first discovered your music, I was very young. Uh, I was maybe 15 or something. So it made a big effect on me. So it, it literally changed my life. So I just want you to put your fucking name on it. That's all. And he said, okay. So he signed it for me. And I had to really be, I had to really explain why my life changed. So I, I said, look, you taught me about being fearless in, in terms of, I mean, that I didn't go through minute detail, but that, that poor guy went through hell, right? Mm. With his bands. Mm -hmm. So but he was fearless for most, you know, the whole part. So, you know, he, he, he can teach you a lot. And, and I made a, I made a habit of making sure that if I actually became friends with my heroes, um, I could not continue being their friend until I told them uh, how much they meant to me. So for example, I, I've known Rob from Radio Berman for a very long time. He's, He's basically um, he's basically uh, 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 the guy who did the uh, second ever Hard Ons record, Girl in a Sweater. But I knew him before then, you know, mm. I, I, you know, as a as a kid hanging around record stores and whatnot. But um, one, one, you know, you know, he's in that band, The New Christ, right? Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. So we played with The New Christ one night. It was like 2011 or something like that in 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 Hamburg and. So we're staying at the same hotel. Um, actually, it wasn't hotel. It was band department. You know, when you look at your tour, <laughs> yes. uh, accommodation, 
Band department and the hairs on the back of your neck stand up. <laughs> yes, yes, hundred yeah. uh, percent. What about when you when you said it? Yeah. My my neck, my, the hairs on the back of my neck stood up immediately. Yeah. What about when you flick through your a tour itinerary? Uh, it says um, Hotel Ibis. You go yes, okay. And then the next page, uh, you go Toulouse. The venue name. It says accommodation. It says private, and you go private. <laughs> <laughs> no, I will take private over Formula One. Oh, Formula One. Oh, my oh. God. With the toilet, toilets with no seats. Oh, my God, oh my God. dude. I would rather yeah. sleep in the van. I will definitely choose to sleep in the van over yeah. Formula One. Yeah. It's like, who invented this? Somebody who into torture? You know, like yeah. the, the, the little bed up the back, uh, up the top? <laughs> yeah. It's like, uh, you've met, um, uh, you've met, um, um, uh, Ice block sticks wider, right? You know, you, you're looking at that little bunk up the top. <laughs> oh my god! Uh, uh, no, it is. Yeah. It is like someone looked at uh, a minimum security prison and was like, "Yeah, let's do this, but make people pay to stay in it." And that... I know. And then you get yeah. And then they said, "Who?" And 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 they're like, "Who's gonna stay here?" Okay, stupid bands. <laughs> yeah, to the war- bands that are suckers. <laughs> yeah, and. uh People running from the law. <laughs> okay. Yeah, yeah, and, and, yeah. And people so, that can't yeah, hit the yeah. toilet when they pee. A lot of oh, a lot of urine God. on the floor. I find. Oh yeah, I know. It's almost like well, there's no seat here anyway, and they're, yeah. they're going to uh, <laughs> yeah, and they, they don't clean. They've got these jet water jets coming. Yeah, the uh, self quote yeah. unquote self cleaning toilet that never smells clean. Yeah. Oh, crazy. Yeah. Um. Yeah, but I was t- uh, we, when we played with um, Rob Young and mm. uh, New Christ, I, you know, we hung out at this band department. I said, listen, Rob, you've been a friend of mine for a long time. I've got to tell you, without Radio Birdman, my life would be different. And I, it was it was an honest truth. Mm. And he said, he listened to it and he goes, why are you bringing this up now? And I said, because oh, you're my friend. I never told you, you know, I never told you how much your, your music means to me. And he... And he gave me a hug and he said, thanks, mate. And I, you know, I thought, hey, I got it off our chest. I thought I'd get it off my chest, you know. And I said the same thing to um, Captain Sensible from the Dams, you know, because we became friends after all these years. Um, he produced one of our records and he sang on one of our records and he did, did a record called Dateless Dudes Club, um, which never ended up coming out um, with his version on it. Um, but we we did a record. We became friends and stuff like that. And um, I saw him one night and I said, look, um, uh, I just told him your music means a lot. And uh, you, you changed my life, you know. And, and I kind of needed to say that, you know, because until I tell you this, our friendship can't really continue. I, I'll be your friend, but I need to tell you this first. Because just. You know, this yeah. is really important for me. You, and I've met so many, thanks to punk rock, I've met so many incredibly talented people, you know. I mean, Rob Younger. I mean, I mean, I, I know him as a friend, but but that guy changed my life, you know. Jeez. Yeah. Well, it's that's why I started this podcast is because it's kind of, yeah, like it's difficult to go up to a friend of yours, someone that you've known for a while, and talk to them about their music and how important their music is and why you think their their music is important. But with this podcast, I can completely get away with it. It gave me a safe space to to punish my yeah. friends and to punish my heroes. 
you should you should um you should talk to rob one night have you ever met oh, rob from ready no oh I'm not... my god incredibly well, fascinating well obviously like not directly as yourself but my life would change without radio birdman because i think radio birdman's like one of the key building blocks for this thing that without oh, them being part totally. of it it would look very different absolutely incredible you know and and he was telling me when like i told him uh, when i said look uh, i'll tell you what happened with radio birdman i would buy that radio birdman record uh, and there will be a cover of um uh the stooges on it um tvi yeah i discovered the stooges through you and i told him and on the on the same record radio as appear but the american press version with the white cover on it there was a, a cover of a song called you're gonna miss me by the 13 for elevators and without that record i would not have discovered 13 for elevators and i said look this is a you've just basically kicked this door down for me. And I just went, I got really hungry. And all of a sudden I'm in a record store going, this is a candy store, you know, um, yeah. there's so much shit that I can discover. And you, you, your music basically pushed me into a world that I just did not want to leave. And I haven't to this day left it because of you. I haven't left this world, you know, and uh, to this day, if I'm overseas touring, I'm looking for records. And if I see something, it, it just made me become a uh, appreciate that kind of stuff and and um, become really curious about music that is just off the beaten track, you know. You yeah. Just, that's that's what it is. And all the really great stuff um, uh, isn't necessarily on the on the track, but it's off the beaten track as well, you know. Yeah, I think that's why I think one of the coolest things split series that someone's done in recent memory is that series that you guys did of splits on we empty records or we empty rooms sorry we empty rooms oh you got that stuff well i i don't have them all but the, the fact that you get the slight slappers i have the neil hamburger one but the melvins right. and the slight sappers and neil hamburger like uh i don't know it's just such a, like what a cool array of bands you know and and bands that i love an artist that I love, obviously, with Neil Hamburger, but like, not necessarily something that I would associate with you guys. But it makes perfect sense that you're doing this with all these bands too. Oh, Neil's been a friend for a long, long time. I actually was in in a band with him in 1997 um, called um, the Bus Monsters. It was um, <laughs> it was Neil on vocals. Yeah, it was Neil on vocals, and it was um, Trey from. Um, Trey from um, uh, a band called um, Secret Chiefs. Um, what, what's the other? He was in Mr. Bungle for a while too. He's in Mr. Bungle and he was also in Faith No More on that King for a Day record, right? Okay, yeah. Right? Yeah. And uh, Oren Ambachi on guitar and Robbie Avenaim on drums. And the other the other singer was a guy named Masona from Japan. Okay, yeah. I he definitely know Masona from Japan. Noise. Yeah. yeah. So, <laughs> so it was, it was a... It was an all-star jam, but I was the only one actually playing anything. Everyone else was just making just free-for-all noise, and it went for about ten minutes. And um, the gig finished when somebody threw a trampoline with contact microphones stuck on it onto my head, and it hit me in the head, and that was the end of the concert. But uh, that's when I first met Neil Hamburger, um, when he was 
in Australia with a band called Faxed Head. I was going to ask about Faxed Head. Yeah. Yeah. He, that's when he was in Faxed Head. That's when I met him. And we've been friends since. And then when I found out he was a comedian, um, all the guys in the Hardons became massive fans of his work. It was incredible. I thought it was the greatest thing I'd ever seen. Yeah. Um, him, you know, I've never seen him bait uh, people. Uh, I've never seen anyone bait people like that. You know, it was it was incredible human baiting. You know, um, but um, yeah, we did that record with him as well. We did a record, uh, a four track EP where he was our singer for one EP. We did a a Black Flag cover called Six Pack. Um, yeah, we did that EP. But he also did that split record as well. He's 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 um he's a true talent. I I love Neil. I was on a cruise with him one time and I couldn't approach him because I was like, I don't know if I'm allowed to when he's, you know, when he's just out there. And now he's obviously, he does on cinema now and he's, he's kind of like dropped the character and kind of broken character a lot more. But at the time it was so all consumed. It was like going up to a professional wrestler or something. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, wow. Yeah. And the other bands on that series, Slight Slappers, they're, they're a Japanese band. Godly. Incredible. Godly. Yeah, oh. Incredible. I, have you seen them live? Never. I've just been a fan of them since, like, I was a kid, like, buying their records. Every time we go to Japan, we play with them. Every time. And um, uh, we, we started playing with them because uh, the promoter in Japan, in Tokyo, said, I'm getting a band to support you they're called the slight slappers and i said i know them they're very good and he said well they want to play with you guys they're all fans right they saw you play back when we were there in 91 and they're not young kids they're they're, they're an incredible band. Like, i know them they're incredible and when i saw them play i just couldn't that live they were just incredible i mean the lead guitar player had a flying v guitar he picked it up like an airplane and he threw it in the crowd because it's a flying bee. It's shaped like an airplane anyway. It looks yeah. aerodynamic. He, he threw it in the crowd <laughs> and, it, and it flew in the air and somebody caught it and threw it back. He caught it and it was completely out of tune. But then he started shredding this incredible lead guitar over the top of this, you know, that power violence beat that they have. Yeah. <laughs> and the song finished. Then they started another song. He was still out of tune. He kept on playing and it was... It was out of tune, but it was so fast and distorted. It didn't matter. It was performance art. It was basically performance art. Mm-hmm. It mm-hmm. was just so violent. It was, well, you know, orally violent. It was incredible live. They, they're actually better than their records, and their records are incredible, right? Yeah. No, I like I that 90s Japanese hardcore period. Like, all there's a lot of different styles in that period, obviously, but like, just so many of my favorite bands like are just hitting their stride like gauze or 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 bastard or death side or and then slight slapper like it just like it's the 90s japanese punk is is probably my you know obviously australian punk as we're talking about but right up there 90s japanese punk for me i think for that kind of stuff like that stuff that is basically really unhinged you can't go past the japanese stuff from that period mm-hmm. i saw gauze play now in 1989 gauze were playing um uh their first tour outside japan and um uh I, I i took photos of that concert i still have the photos oh my they god were, i gotta see I, those. I'm going to, oh i have them on my hard drive i'm gonna send them to you but basically they 
they were playing in um it was the first con first london concert of um fudge tunnel and the guy who was putting out fudge tunnel on his label at the time rob tennant he said um i'm putting out this record by a band called fudge tunnel um they're supporting gauze from japan who are in turn supporting chaos uk at the sir george roby and i said we have to go he goes i need to get there early to watch gauze sound check before any of the people with dreadlocks turn up and stink at the place <laughs> okay let's go all right so you know i'm only joking of course yeah, but no, we just... went but um you know but he, you know, we're, we're like talking about Stenchcore because he told me a story about the Stenchcore guys that defecate in, in their own trousers and this kind of carry on. I was like, oh, I'm scared of that kind of stuff. <laughs> yeah. So anyway, we we went to the sound check and uh, we met the Gorze guys. They were really nice. Um, but they were very um, reserved. And then they went on stage to sound check and um, it was a most powerful violent thing i'd ever heard because i had distortion on everything everything had distortion on it and then i said they're going to they're going to kill people tonight so we saw fudge tunnel they were great but that was their first gig and then gauze came on and they just flattened the room it was unbelievable the you know one of the great things about japanese punk is that they seem to kind of do things a little bit more bent and more unhinged i don't mm. know if that makes sense but mm. you know i think a band like um you know i think a band like um uh, uh gizm uh it makes sense that they come from japan where you know uh you know obviously they're not a uk band they're not an american band they're not a canadian band they're a japanese band and they're they're unhinged there's something kind of uh really left of center about them and um when i saw gauze i knew what it was the bass player had tears all over his jeans i mean you know when you think of punk you think of torn clothing but he actually had torn trousers but he also had those you know resillos yeah or or you know the those wrap around sunglasses yeah yeah you know with the bottom lip sticking out you know the, the you know the 1977 uh, punk with a school blazer with a safety pin with a wraparound sunglasses. <laughs> yeah. He looked like he looked like he was in a Resilos tribute band, you know. And he had this SG bass, which was a short scale, and he had all these pedals. And he went, it didn't sound like a bass. It sounded like um, uh, 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 Rainy from Discharge times fifty. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. It was like he got. His sound was like, you know that song, Ain't No Feeble Bastard? It sounds like he got that and put that for a distortion pedal. It was incredible. I go, what's going on? It was, this is apocalypse. And when they started playing, they just went, and the whole crowd just fucking melted. I went, oh, Chaos UK, they're a good band. They're going to follow this? That was incredible. It was so unhinged. And I just went, I need to go and buy all their records. It was incredible. It was just, wow, well, something. I tell you, I've never seen anything like it. And uh, that made me realize far out. It's um, the Japanese have got some of the most incredible approach to punk rock you could think of, right? Yeah. It, they, well, it's, it's, it's weird. I, well, it's like you're saying it, how it's got like a, a bent to it where it's just like so extreme. And it's like, 
I remember looking at these records of these guys in Japan with these massive, like Zhao with the massive charged hair. And then you get to Japan and you're like, oh my gosh, like what would it be like to be a person like this on the subway where everyone is, you know, everyone's trying their best to be as, as in their own place as possible to be someone that outside of society and the norm, you'd have to be like a completely different mindset. Like it's, it's way different than being a punk anywhere else that I've been. I think so. That's probably what it is. You know, some some of the, some of the most, I mean, you know, what about that band corrupted? Oh my God. You like that? I love them. I mean, it just melts your face, right? And I I saw gauze, you know, three years ago and it was the most most powerful concert I think I've ever seen in my life. Like they, they're still good still good they yeah. played an hour yeah. no stopping yeah. and yeah. it was it was crazy like i just it, the energy and the power of that show was just so special like i'm i feel so lucky that i got to see it yeah i, I loved them when i saw them in 89 that was the only time i oh. saw the lead guitar player who was a skinny little guy yeah he had black jeans and he had you know when you see photos of punk rockers from 1980 or 81 in in uh, i don't know la you see them wearing engineer boots you know mm-hmm, mm-hmm. you know like they look like leather motorcycle boots he was wearing them and i'm there thinking well everyone's kind of wearing army boots that look like they've found them in a dumpster or you know they, you know that stench core look you know and yeah. this guy's wearing shiny black <laughs> motorcycle boots with his tight black jeans tucked into them so he looks like some kind of fucking, um, well, he uh, he looks more like, I don't know what he looks like. He looked like Billy Idol, but a <laughs> yeah. Japanese version. Yeah. And that he had this black SG guitar and it was just uh, a rampage. It was a sonic rampage. And I just thought, well, game set match. I mean, I love Chaos UK, but this is a pretty tough act to follow, you know. Oh, incredible. I've never seen anything like it. Did any other Japanese bands like did Japanese bands come to Australia? Because obviously it's still very far away, but I for some reason it seems closer than Canada does. Yeah, no, we didn't have any Japanese bands come other than um, Burushana. You know Burushana? No, Burushana. Okay, it's the it's the bass player from um, Corrupted. Okay, yeah, okay. yeah, yeah. So they were they were incredible, um, and a um, couple of other bands here and there. Um, I can't recall some of their names, mm. um, but all I know is that I remember playing with them. I can't remember some of their names, but really supercharged punk rock. But also the first Japanese band, punk band that came to Australia was in the mid eighties called Star Club. Do you remember yeah. that band? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. yeah, they came. Yeah, they came and they were really good. And um, uh, I, I, last time, actually, ironically, the last time the Hardons went to Japan, one of the guys from Star Club, uh, came to our show and um, he didn't look to have aged. I went, wow, <laughs> you haven't aged. What happened? It was, just, it was really weird. It looked, looked like he was in a movie set for that movie Wolverine, you know, yeah. <laughs> you know, I'm not aging. <laughs> <laughs> Who did you guys play with on that first tour of Japan? Like, were you playing with like more kind of punk rock bands or more hardcore bands? Like, like Slate Slappers style or? no. In 1991, we did a joint tour yeah. uh, with an English band. They were, they were friends of ours. They were called Snuff. 
Oh, amazing. Oh, I had no idea you guys yeah. went there with them. Oh, incredible. Yeah, yeah. so so it's it's the first lineup of Snuff. Yeah. Um we met we met them, we became good friends um in in uh in the UK and in ninety one so it was um uh uh Sean Sean the tour manager was a guy named Sean. He was he's in a band called What Tyler. Yeah, Sean Forbes. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. He was yeah. a tour manager. From Hardskin. Right? Yeah, from he sings yes, in the band. Yes, yes, yes. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. Fucked up to the um, split with him. We've done hard, Sean's a good friend. So once again, we're all connected somehow, I guess. Fantastic guy. Fantastic yeah. guy. So it was it was Sean was tour managing. Uh and then it was uh uh Duncan, Redman on drums, it and um there was Andy on bass who who ended up joining Leatherface after that. Mm. But um Andy Andy um has passed away now. Uh, but uh, Simon Wells, the original guitar player, who I still keep in contact with, actually. Uh, he was the original guitar player, a fantastic guitar player and singer. Um, so it was those those four guys uh, and 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 the hard-ons um, going to Osaka and Tokyo. And the, the shows, had, they, they had like 800 people each. They, they were pretty big shows. <laughs> yeah. Were, but the local bands... Um, there was no local band in uh, Osaka, but in Tokyo, there was a band called the Beyonds. Uh, um, but I don't think they put out any record. I I remember um, the name of the band Beyonds because we um, I found a sticker of them that they gave me in 1991, and I peeled it and stuck it on the on the on my guitar case recently. Uh, this is 30 years later yeah. and it was still sticky. So that's Japanese quality for you. You know, <laughs> um, you know, you mentioned uh, snuff. When did you guys become friends with all like mega city four and like that whole melodic wave of British stuff? Like when did you first become aware that that stuff was popping? I off can't, I can't believe that, you know, these bands, uh, Damien, I really can't <laughs> because you think that they were, uh, they would have been consigned to, um, you know the dustbins of history, but they—I mean, it's incredible that you, you you remember these bands. I mean, we the first time we went to uh, London, uh, that was 1988. We played with um, uh, a bunch of bands that were from that scene. So there was a band called Sync, which was Ed from mm-hmm. the Stupid More Melodic Band. There was a band called the Space Maggots, who were on um, on a label called. Uh, um, violence, uh, vinyl solution, which was our label, and there was a guy named. There was a band called Perfect Days. We played a few shows with them, and that was um, um, the bass player uh, was in um, in the Stupids at one stage, but um, the singer, the singer was a guy named Lawrence who ended up forming a label. That signs oh. bands like Arctic Monkeys. Yeah, no, he it, Lawrence who Domino Records. That's and, right. Yeah, that's yeah. That was his wh- band. What was the band called? Uh, Perfect Days. I had no idea he was in that band. That's crazy. He also he did one of the first Oi fanzines and is thanked in the first Blitz seven inch as the dude who did right, this Oi right, fanzine. Right. Yeah. That's so wild. Lawrence, yeah, Lawrence uh, is Domino Records, but he was the lead singer of a band called Perfect Days. And I don't know if you heard Perfect Days. I think they did a seven inch. I think I have the single. Yeah, and they also did a twelve inch, which is fantastic. It's like bubblegum punk pop. Yeah, similar to like if you can imagine the Doughboys but slower. Yeah, you know something yeah. like that, like melodic. 
and not jumping up so high, you know, <laughs> but, um, but, uh, but we became friends with those guys. Um, and they, a lot of those guys, like the guys from snuff and, um, mega city four. And there was another band called, uh, senseless things. All those yeah. guys used to come and see us play. And then sure enough, all those bands became really popular in America to the point where, um, uh, we, the, in 1989, we had Mega City 4 were uh, supporting us. And by the time we went back in 1991, they were playing these huge shows, like huge, huge shows. Um, and we were supporting them. And they, they had these huge shows. And, the, and that on that tour, we met the Senseless Things guys. And when we went back in 93 uh senseless things were huge and we were supporting them i couldn't believe how popular they were they sold out the town and country club and things like that mm. so but yeah we met them through them coming to our shows um but um they've always been the most incredibly talented and nice people so um it was it was certainly a pleasure to um meet bands like mega city four though certainly were the nicest people you could meet and really great bands as well. I don't yeah. know if you like that kind of stuff, but they're oh, great I love bands. It. Yeah. Yeah. Great bands. Yeah. Yeah. It's interesting. Really Cause like you guys, that stuff that's popping off there and then the asexuals and the Doughboys, uh, like it feels like there's like this sort of like intelligent pop music, pop punk, or, or melodic approach to punk rock. There's a bunch of bands, once again, spread out all over the world that are kind of approaching it from the same way. Fastbacks, too, I think, is kind of doing the same sort of oh, thing, too. Fastbacks were a fantastic band, but we never met them. We mm. never met them, but I, I think that they're, they're a really good band. But we certainly became good friends with uh, the Big Drill Car, all uh, the Descendants. We became friends with the Doughboys. We played so many shows with the Doughboys. Um, and the Doughboys, you know, they, we became really good friends with them. And when they formed the band called All Systems Go, we brought them out to Australia and, and whatnot. You know, that, very talented people. Um, but they they were, it, it was quite a separate uh, thing to, to me because we met in 1989, we met um, the singer from No Effects as well. And, um, but he, I think he belonged to, ended up forming this other scene that was, um, quite different you know the rhythmically it was um uh more based on that fast drum beat of uh bad religion suffer album it was mm -hmm. almost like they took that drum beat and applied it to other bands on on um on uh you know fat the fat records bands that to me that was a slightly different scene to what the doughboys and the descendants were doing yeah um uh but but we certainly became good friends with all those guys. Played lots of shows with Big Drill Car, the, the Doughboys, and um, Descendants. Well, when they were called, well, we played certainly played lots of shows with them. Um, but um, we all had this one thing in common, and it was, um, I, I think, a love love of melody. And uh, the only thing that um, the Hard-Ons were slightly different was that uh, we had a, a fair bit more. Um, heavy metal than those guys i think yeah well it, it, i think like the thing that i you know i, I just noticed it recently actually listen to the asexuals it's amazing how much the asexuals sound like a precursor to that epifat sound 
like that epitaph fat records kind of like but it's more like you're saying it's more slick and it's kind of like got more of that la kind of glam rock kind of bent to I it i think so yeah i think that it's comes might um might come from a similar place but it um what happened with all those fat wreck bands um you know that that was a whole big thing on its own i think you know and yeah and good luck to them it became i mean um personally speaking i didn't really like a lot of those bands you know like um i mean we played with a lot of those bands and met them and now some of those bands were actually really talented people but um you know i i we met and played with bands like mill and colin um 10 foot pole uh lag wagon and all those bands but they seem to be slightly different to they they came a little bit after um a little bit after the hard-ons and descendants and um big drill car and doughboys i think you know yeah. but i'll tell you the doughboys and mega city four and the hard-ons were really close friends and the three of us ended up playing shows together as well on the continent and stuff like that yeah castor was just on the show the other day and we were talking about the hard-ons oh he's he's a really close friend oh he's the best i love john castor yeah he's yeah. a really nice guy you know yep oh absolutely yeah. growing Huge up fan. yeah growing up in toronto because of north by northeast and his involvement with north by northeast i kind of got to know him through that and then it's only later on that i went back and discovered the first asexuals lp and the first single and realized like Oh my God! In addition to the Doughboys, you have all this other amazing stuff that you did prior to it too. That that um, first Asexuals album, oh. um, uh, "Be What You Want," is fantastic. Yeah. Oh, it's yeah, so it's good. really fast. Yeah. yeah, it's really great. The second one suffers from the the sound is um, not as rough and raw, mm. so I think um, it's a little bit. Um, it, it's not as it doesn't have the impact the first album had but the the first album's fantastic you know yeah, yeah. even the third album without john in the band is is really good mm -hmm. you know so well it's interesting um, that yeah, he goes it, oh, sorry go on oh, no no I, I i got that record because they sent me a copy of it um so um you know we, we like the hard-ons this is our band asexuals <laughs> and i was like I know who you are. I've got your first two records, but this one doesn't have John Castner in it. He's my friend. Where's John? He's not in the band anymore. And I told and I told that to John when I saw him. I said, "Hey, um, you know that band that you left, Asexuals? They're still going without you." And they sent me a record. He goes, "Yeah, it's not very good." And I said, "I thought it was good. <laughs> I thought it was quite good." It's funny though that they do that record, and then John's doing that first Doughboys LP, which is obviously a classic um it's That's amazing a great record yeah like the songs that, that came out of that camp in like a mm. six-year span it's it's yeah. amazing incredible yeah mm -hmm. really talented guys and and that that original drummer in the doughboys brock um fantastic songwriter as well you know yeah fantastic he yeah. i think he only he quit after the second album but great songwriter you know they when he quit the band they missed his songwriting a little bit, I think, but they're still a great band, fantastic band. And I picked it up not too long ago. But he did a solo single afterwards. Um, oh, I, just, I haven't got that. I'm trying to remember what it, I, I just found it at a record store the other yeah, a couple months ago, I guess, and uh, yeah. I had no idea about it. But it's it's out on a Boston label. I think it's even out of Boston, like recording. Yeah, right. Too. I'll have to track that one down. I'll, I'll send you the Doughboys. name. Please, thank you. Um, 
But as I said an hour and a bit ago, Ray, this is incredible. And anytime you want to come on here and nerd out about punk rocks, punk rock or hardcore or music or whatever, you the door is always open. Please come back. Oh yeah, yeah. Just let me know when you're free, and I'll 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 be happy to chat with you. Awesome. Before I let you go, though, because it's come up on the show a couple times, I wanted to ask you about that tour that you guys did with Jerry A. Uh, oh, okay. Yes. He, he brought up a story on here where there was a plan where he wanted to throw a certain Australian punk legend over the side of a boat when you guys were on a cruise. At- yes. Who was that? Oh, Nick. Who was that? Not Nick Cave. Um, Mick Harvey from the. Uh, yes. Birthday party? yes it was mccarthy oh wow yeah oh <laughs> my god he said that he was pla- he, he was being egged on by mud honey and but he was actually really yeah. planning on trying to throw him over the edge of the boat at one point that's incredible you know because you know um everyone basically the birthday party uh australian institution right mm-hmm. it's they're they're it's almost like um, you know how some there are some rock acts that don't seem human anymore. They seem like aliens or gods. You know, like David Bowie would be one. Yeah. And in in a way, almost Iggy Pop is no longer human. He's just this thing. You know, this idea. You know, uh, I mean, this, those Stooges records are so important. And it, it's similar to the birthday party. We saw the birthday party when we were kids. And it was um, it, it was obviously life changing. I'd never seen anything like that in my life because we're still at in high school. Yeah. So um, they they were basically um, uh, what do you call it? Um, an Australian institution, and and so I I, I knew Jerry really 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 loved. Um, uh birthday party to death so i think to be really honest i think he really was go- gonna get a kick out of meeting the the, the bands you know the the, yeah. the you know like nick cave and uh mick harvey who were in um the birthday party i think he was gonna get a kick out of them. and jerry one day we were at rehearsal for that tour he said um not rehearsal um i think the rehearsals are done i think he might have been at a hotel or something he said look i just bumped into Mikavi, um, in the the lift, in the elevator, and I said yes, and and he said he was really rude to me, and I said, and then um, Jerry laughed it off, but you know, Jerry's a larger than life character, and Poison ID is certainly one of the most important punk bands that I could think of. You know, I just mm-hmm. loved him, mm-hmm. but and he, Jerry has always loomed large in my life because I love Poison ID to death, but at the heart of what Poison Idea are about is about when you talk to um, Tom, Pig Champion, and Jerry, because when we toured with those guys around the States, you could tell at the core of Poison Idea was Jerry and Tom, Tom Roberts, Pig Champion, who were the biggest punk rock nerds ever. You know, yeah, yeah. they were just like me and you. They loved, they loved all those bands. And so, we all love birthday party to death and he was a big fan and i think his heart was broken to be honest his heart was broken that his hero was rude to him and um and i felt bad but i thought you know 
I feel bad for him, but um, but I could I could see that um, uh, Mick Harvey could be a rude asshole, but you know, but what can you do? I mean, the music's still great, right? You know, <laughs> but I I remember one thing, right? Um, we were in Perth uh, in in for the Big Day Out tour, and we all had these tents, and there's no air conditioning in the tents. It was so hot. It was. It was 42 degrees uh, uh, Celsius. It was incredibly hot. So everyone's just sweating. But luckily, the hard-ons have this persona where we have no shirt. With, we, we're, we, we're topless and yeah. we have shorts and we have no shoes. And we walk around backstage. Everyone else is wearing shirts. And we can walk around because we're the hard-ons. And we're just, you know, we might be lepers in the music industry. But <laughs> that gives us... That gives us um, the ability to dress the way we want, you know? So we're dress, walking around spraying water on ourselves with water pistols. And I saw that Nick Cave and the Bad Seas had this tent. And I just went, i got to see this. And I went in there. I said, hello. And I w- stuck my head in. And I saw Blixar Bargeld. <laughs> yeah. I saw Blixar Bargeld in a suit, in a suit, in that heat. And his hair was stuck to his forehead. And you could see he's, he was had a layer of his own moisture, his own sweat. Yeah. And they're going, oh, it's a long way from Berlin, isn't it? <laughs> uh, he was covered in sweat. You could tell that he, all he wanted to do was strip down to his underwear and go into a swimming pool, but he was, he's a fucking bad seed. He can't take off his suit. No. That's his shtick, you it's know? painted on. But, I, but Nick Cave was backstage and he wasn't sweating. And I just, I said to the other guys in the hard-ons, I said, I just came out of the Nick Cave and the Bad Seeds tent. They were all covered in sweat. And you should have seen Blixer Bargel. He looked like he'd just been fucking swimming. <laughs> Nick Cave, Nick Cave wasn't sweating. Nick Cave wasn't sweating. He had no sweat. And I said, I think he's undead. <laughs> <laughs> and, 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 um, years later, um, uh, do you know Warren Ellis from the Dirty Three? Do you know yeah. that guy? Yeah. Yeah. So Warren, Warren's a friend from um, the old days. Um, uh, so I, I knew him for a long time. So when he joined the Bad Seeds, um, he, he went to do just went all over the world with the Bad Seeds and stuff, and he ended up back in Sydney playing at the Opera House one night. And I bumped into him in the street and I said, Warren, Warren, right from the heart. I said, oh, let's go and have lunch. So we had lunch together. And I said to him, I told him that story. I said, hey, listen, um, when we did that big day out tour, it was 42 degrees in Perth and everyone in the bad seats was covered in sweat, wearing suits, except Nick. He wasn't, he didn't have any sweat on him at all. No perspiration. And Warren just said, yeah, Ray, he doesn't sweat very much, mate. That's all he said. <laughs> and uh, I said, well, I thought he was undead. And he said, no, nah, he's not a zombie, mate. He just doesn't sweat very much at all. It's not his thing. <laughs> oh, that's awesome. Oh, well, but Ray. Yeah, yeah but uh, I have to say before I go, um, he was really, I think um, Jerry was really um, – um, heartbroken about um, uh, about uh, uh, Mick Harvey, and you know, to be honest, we should have thrown him over the fucking boat. But you know, the weird thing is, 
when 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 we're on this harbor cruise, we're on this harbor cruise. So on this is this this harbor cruise there's, there are these tables, right? And on the other side of the boat, the guys in Marhani and um Sonic Youth are sitting at one table drinking. And on we had one table and we were sitting with the Harons were sitting with uh that New York band helmet, right? Yeah. So yeah. we're all sitting together, we're all drinking, and everyone's broken off into different factions. So you, you could clearly see Helmet and the Harons were in, in one part of the room, and Sonic Youth and Marhani were directly sitting across from kind of like the corridor on the boat. And guess who comes on the boat? The boat boat's moored onto the on, onto the wharf. And guess who comes on the boat? It's the Dark Lord himself, Nick Cave. <laughs> Everyone stops talking. It's Nick Cave. And of course, as far as Iggy Pop's concerned, Iggy Pop's in a hotel somewhere. He's yeah. not coming on a fucking boat with riffraff. Yeah. I mean, he may search and destroy. He doesn't have to do that stuff. So Nick Cave comes on the boat. There he is, the Dark Lord. Hair slicked back. Um, no perspiration. Black suit. He walks right past. He looks at Sonic Youth. He looks at Mudhoney. He looks at Helmet. Looks at the Hard-Ons. Goes over. And he stands in front of the the guy from Disposable Heroes of Hypocrisy. He's got <laughs> This headphone on and he's going wooku 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 doing a DJ set wooku 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 because he's a DJ for the line he's going wooku 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 and Nick Cave's looking at him and there's this guy with a head big oversized headphones with two turntables and he's playing these turn these records wooku 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 and Nick Cave's looking at him and he turns around and walks past Sonic Youth Marhani Hardons Helmet and then we're all looking out the window of the boat and he goes on the wooden plank walks by himself on the wooden plank and he gets into this black car slams the door the car drives off <laughs> and Paige hamilton from helmet says i don't think he's coming back <laughs> oh well, Ray, I hope you come back to this podcast and thank you for all the music and everything. Oh, thank you. Thank you, mate. It was lovely to talk to you, Damien. And good luck. You've just got a, a new um, anniversary reissue coming out, haven't you? We do. Fucked up, unfortunately. Yeah. Tar marches on, and now we've had an anniversary to deal with. Oh, wow. That's incredible. You're not a, you're not a young man anymore, Damien. I tell you, it's catching up with me. It's you know I've been I going know. to show since '85. Jeez, yeah. <laughs> Thank you, Ray, for coming on the show. And you heard right there, Ray will be back for a part two at some point in the future because that was awesome. And and believe me, we could go on forever. There's a lot more records to discuss. Uh, speaking of things I'm very much looking forward to that are coming up in the future in a few short days on this very show right here from Tom goes to the mayor from Tim and Eric awesome show. Great job from Tim and Eric's bedtime stories from on cinema, uh, from Tim and Eric's a billion dollar movie. Uh, he's all, he's also an Ant-Man I think too. Tim Heidecker is going to be on the show, and this is a good one. This goes places I didn't think it would go, and that's why we do this podcast, to find out this kind of stuff, and you're going to find out a lot next week. Oh, I'm excited for you to hear this. 
Uh, but that is it for this show. Remember, as always, Black Lives Matter. The lives of Indigenous peoples matter. We need to protect trans kids. We need to help trans people protect themselves and stop hate and violence towards Asian people, people of different faiths, and just we need to get involved because these aren't political issues. These are these are basic human rights issues. People have the right to live their lives without fear of violence and without fear of hatred. I think that's fair. That's fair. You know, we all do. So get involved in ways that you feel that you can lend your support, be it, you know, getting involved in organizations that are doing positive work, donating money, whatever, whatever. There's something, doing something is better than doing nothing. And some people are doing a lot. So, you know, great for them. And, and if you're not doing anything, maybe do something, make you feel good. Uh, speaking of things that make you feel good, try and uh, meditate. I tried doing it and, it and it's worked for me, you know, and I didn't believe in it, but it worked for me. So maybe it'll work for you. Who knows? Breathing, breathing helps. Drinking water, all this shit that I thought just hippies did. It turns out the hippies were, were right about this. They, they were right. So drink water, meditate, you know, other stuff that hippies did too. If you want to do that, I found that also is beneficial. Speaking of things that are beneficial, try and make your own culture. Anyone can do this shit. Start a band, start a fanzine, start a podcast. Anyone can do this stuff. You go out there and make something. You don't have to share with everyone. Just share with a couple people. Or don't share with anyone. Just put it out there and, and just, you know, let it be there. You know? Uh, and, and I think that's it. Uh, I think that's it. Assign your organ donor cards because when they come looking for those organs, you don't need them anymore. And, uh, well, that is it. Thank you for listening. See you on the next episode.